They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. That's why I said, in God we trust, but which God are we talking about? Because... Welcome to the one-on-one podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. So that's the private occulted history of the country. And on the public side, later on that next day, everybody thinks that we signed the Constitution under the light of day when the sun was high in the sky. And so Benjamin Franklin, that that day when everybody's signing, he was out of sorts. He seemed to be spacing. And the people asked him, you know, what were you thinking about? You seemed to be really lost in thought in there. He was probably tripping on the mushrooms still from the rituals from the night before. They asked him, why were you in such a daze when everybody's busy doing making history? And he says, you know, I was just totally fixated on Washington's chair. I can't tell if that sun that is embalmed, embossed onto the back of Washington's chair, I can't tell if it's a rising sun or a setting sun. This is probably some sort of talisman that they were using for this ritual that they did. And it reminds me of the bathing of the stars, the alchemical process where the sun and the moon are bathing in the stars now it's alchemy so it's symbolic and it's got a very dark connotation to it because the stars are you know the blood of certain Make sure to check out the Patreon. Make sure to check out the Occultist Monday and the comic book. Links in the description. And today we got the lovely Carla, Dr. Carla Ionescu, and the beautiful Gabe, right? Slick Dissident. (laughs) 
uh, look at that chin look at that hair it's like a nordic god so i wanted to get together a lot of people really enjoyed that episode we did on the serpent worship it, it, mm. it, it did really well a lot of people are resonating with it so i said i want to do another episode on something along those lines and so gabe had hit me up and was like hey i have this research that i've been doing and it's right up our alley where we're going to be talking about the Greek pantheon and what I believe is the invocation by the elites. Because at the end of the day, it's the gods that they worship, right? It's all about putting out this energy that, that they believe will get them somewhere. I don't know, but we'll let, the, we'll let these two break it down. Can you, uh, ladies first, Carla, can you tell us where we can find your work, your book, your Instagram, your podcast? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have my book with me actually right now, but my book is called She Who Hunts, Artemis, The Goddess Who Changed the World. You can find it anywhere where you get your books. Um, you can find me across social media at everywhere uh, at Artemis Expert. And my podcast, if you're into goddesses and symbols and mythology, is called The Goddess Project Podcast. And it's on Spotify and on YouTube. Um, and I'm sure Juan, you'll have all the links somewhere. So follow me if you like that stuff. Yeah. Slick dissident. Where can people find your the YouTube? Just YouTube, right? Uh, pretty much. I'm uh, just on YouTube with my personal channel. Uh, and I call it, I call it a shared learning experience. You know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades with my research. I'm, uh, and I just essentially share a lot of my own learning experience and the process with a lot of very imaginative, uh, uh, conspiracy oriented, uh, analysis. And so, uh, you can come over there and kind of see where I come to these wild conclusions. Uh, you know, I consider myself like a master of correspondence. Uh, I adhere very closely to the hermetic principles you know, and my favorite of the seven hermetic principles is correspondence. So if it looks like, if it sounds like, it is like. And that is a very important foundation of, uh, of magic. And so, and it grants to me a very magical worldview. I see things, I think, in a very unique way. So, uh, I, but I also get down with the weaving spider's webs. It's one of my, one of my uh, circles of influence on Saturday nights. We weave all the way into Sunday mornings. And then I also get down on Interverse podcast with Chance Garten, and he's on uh, YouTube and Rockfin uh, as well. So those are some of the spots you'll find me. Right oh, on. And, and I, bought, I bought your book today, Carla. I'm looking forward Yay! to it. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what you think of it as well. Uh -oh. And what else you might find in there. I don't know if you're going to like it, Carla, because he said that Artemis is not in a good place on his tree of the Capitol Hill. <laughs> so no. I, I don't know. Well, she has <laughs> she has a very important role to play. And... No, Gabe, that's my boo. So <laughs> tread carefully, my friend. <laughs> totally, totally. So here we go. And I want to start off by showing something that is really interesting. The rotunda at the Capitol Hill. Oh, and yeah. let's see here. I can find a high res. So this the apotheosis of Washington and it's got your boy, Washington, George Washington here in the center on, I'm trying to zoom in, but it won't let me. Anyways, you have Poseidon, 
you have Lady Liberty or something, and then you have a rainbow with George Washington sitting here, almost like a god. god. And this is in the rotunda at the Capitol building. You have Hermes here. So it's a very alchemical painting, obviously drenched in in symbolism. And I want to also add to make sure to follow us because Gabe and I have some very special episodes planned here coming up very soon. Where yeah. what I say I'm cooking with the fire in the alchemical cave and it's, it's going to be fire. So stay tuned for that. Cause that, we're going to be recording that very soon. And this is going to be a banger. I know it's going to be a banger. So here we are, but I want to bring this up because I learned about this recently and mm. what were they thinking when they, when the guy who painted this, painted it up here and was like, Hey, let's make this guy look like some sort of God. And you know, it, now that you say that one, I went to Washington many, many, many years ago now. Uh, and I did a conference paper there and the, I didn't walk inside. I didn't see this ceiling, but I kind I was outside and outside of it, there is a fountain of Zeus with a bunch of nymphs and some other, uh, actually, I don't remember exactly who was in front, but I remember having this exact reaction of like, what are these nymphs and Zeus? Let's yeah. see if we can find it. Um, you said Capitol Hill? Is it Capitol Hill in Washington? Uh, sorry, my American. Uh, this one? Is it that one? I think so. Yeah. The okay. court of Neptune in there front of the go. Library of Congress, Thomas Jefferson, of course. Okay, so it's Neptune, not Zeus. Yeah. Yes. Kind of, kind of, yeah. eh, kind of, well, kind of. I mean, Zeus is like the head god, right? And then. Yeah. So there's Neptune and there's a bunch of. And I saw, I, so as a visitor, right? And not an American, I was like, this is so, I mean, for me, I took it as obviously Roman Republic, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the USA built itself around the Roman Republic and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So that connection is immediate. But I just thought it was so fascinating that the mythology that's supposed to be fairy tale-ish, at least we're supposed to, you know, uh -huh. is, uh, is central. It's like right in front and it's powerful. It's huge, this, this fountain. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not surprised that inside Capitol Hill on that ceiling, you have those symbols of power. Yeah. Um, and I think that might be Athena. I want to say this is Athena with the eagle of Zeus right there. Lady Liberty? Lady Liberty, Lady Liberty, yeah. Liberty? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So we, uh, we got into this on the Marvelous Demystifiers, this particular image. Hmm. And one thing that stands out to me, I have a, a friend who's like incredibly patriotic. He has very, he's very like ingrained into pol politics and he uh, believes to his dying breath that the founding fathers were Christian and they came here to preserve Christian morals and Christian <laughs> dogma. And for, for this to be placed in front of him would cause a short circuit, you know, wow. Because this, uh, in my theory, is um, there are three forms of Kabbalah. There is the uh, Christian Kabbalah with the C, Q K C, Hebrew with the K, and then there's Greek with a Q. Mm -hmm. mm. And I and we all know that the Bible was originally written in Greek. Yeah. Yes. And, and so the Greek systems of myth mythos are the most deeply ingrained. They're the foundational, the fundamental, the oldest. They're the granddaddy. Yeah. And so I, I find that the psychological implications of Greek mythology 
are incredibly important today. Oh, and, and by that, you mean like as far as American politics, not history. Uh, right. In right. terms of, yeah, world events on the world stage. I just I had deja vu. That, We're supposed to be here, by the way. So I just, all right. uh, when I was Googling yeah. something, I just, I, I've seen it before. So here we are. Nice. Here we are. So, so we, did a, we did a breakdown on that rotunda. Mm-hmm. And we were doing it in correspondence to um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And it was a really fascinating uh, revelation because in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, he goes on trial with, uh, I believe, six different members of a parallel universe with a court that's going to put him on a tribunal. And the members of the court are actually care. And that's as quick as the lizards hit us when you're spitting that uh, stuff. Caricatures of, of Slick, mem- you cut off there completely, bro. Yes. Yeah, very, very bad. And He's this, cutting off again. There you go, brother. See if you can jump out and jump back in because oh. when you get too close to the truth like that, they come a-knocking and they don't like that. So they start to suppress you again. It's weird because I do episodes with people all the time and never have any issues. And then when you get to controversial topics such as yeah. this, where you're you're tr- kind of sort of trampling on their gods, which is that's what people need to understand because this is very sensitive. And some people would take it a certain type of way because, again, it's the gods that they worship. So when when your when your boy thinks that there are Christians, yeah, which that's why I said in God we trust. But which which God are we talking about? Because we know that there's different interpretations of the same God. And I mean, there's a whole, I have a question. Oh, we lost. I I have a question for Gabe. I'm still wondering why that's lady Liberty and not Athena. I'm going to look it up for you. I'm going to look up the mythology on the, because doesn't lady Liberty, what that, that symbolism. Is that better Gabe? Okay. You're back. I'm just wondering why that's the Lady Liberty and not Athena, because to me that like screen is screaming Athena right now. So is there a reason why they've identified that as Lady Liberty or is that just the name that it's given for the painting? Mm. But it could be Athena. I mean, that is Athena. Sword, yes. shield, the yep. helmet, the eagle. There's mm-hmm. her father's eagle. Yeah. Lady Liberty. Well, what's the difference between Lady Liberty and Athena? Sorry, I'm taking you on a totally different track. No, I'm glad you say that because I think they have uh, fused her. I think you're totally right because she's battle ready. She's got the defensive shield. Yeah. And that's, that's an important nuance to Athena is that she's a defensive goddess. And it's Ares who is goes on the offensive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So here we are. This is in this scene, armored freedom, sword raised and cape flying with a helmet and shield reminiscent of those on the statue of freedom tramples tyranny and kingly power. She is assisted by a fierce eagle carrying arrows and a thunderbolt. The official architect of the Capitol photograph is being made available. So, and you know, what's sorry. Now I'm going all over the place, but you know, what's really fascinating too, one now that you say that, uh, Britannia, yeah. In front of St. Paul's Cathedrals in London is also pretty much a adaptation of Athena. So much so that the first time, so in front of St. Paul's Cathedral, there is a, 
a group of statues. What'd you call it? Uh, Britannia in front, Britannia, uh, St. Paul's C- Cathedral. That's in London, but yeah, St. Paul's Cathedral. Blah, 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 blah. Let's see if we can see her. Nope. So, uh, rule Brit- Brit- Britannia. No, Saint- no rule. Yeah, just Britannia. This one? There she is. There she is. See her here with the trident? Oh, so- she's good. Wow. And so when I first saw her, I thought this is Athena because look at her Aegeus with Medusa on it, right? But wow. she's the trident of Neptune or Poseidon. Mm. And, and they're like, oh, no, this is Britannia. And I go, what? So anyway, I'm sidetracking you, but it just seems to me that Athena is now sort of adapted for all for this Lady Liberty and now for Britannia. Like there's all these sort of. Yeah, and it's similar to the Capitol building too. It's got the dome. Interesting, so, right? It's always yeah. the dome, and and I really hate the dome because a lot of people need to understand that architecture. So an entire overlay, uh, the entire let's let's talk about Washington D.C. The entire overlay of Washington D.C. is a cult. It's meant to invoke a certain type of energy, and these buildings themselves, again, back to the Pythagorean palaces, when they adhere to certain principles, which they do, they are able to encapsulate a higher dimension within that building. And if you look at the tomb of Christian Rosencruz, it's always got the oculus. It's always got the dome. It's something about the ascension of the soul and the way that the light comes in, that they are able to, again, either enter other states of consciousness because it's only the initiate, right? Only the initiate that's able to see the occulted scaffolding that the architect, which is also a magician, Yes. Only the initiates are able to see these hidden corridors, this hidden, this corpo transparente, which is this scaffolding that's there that was put in with the intention. It's invisible, but it's put in with a certain intention. So when you have these buildings, oh, why do they all look the same? Or why do they all have the dome? Why do they all have these paintings? It's because of that, because these buildings are used as talismans in order to invoke certain magical powers or enhance magical powers. I 100%, I'm 100% on board with that. Even if the people going in, Again, the uninitiated aren't going to know anything that's happening. But for the ones that are initiated, they're going to know what to do, where to go. And it's a ceremony. When you have the the Senate and all these things coming together, it's a ceremony. And they're invoking certain energies, even with the layout. I mean, you've pointed out, Gabe. And here they are putting these other gods (laughs) with their faces on them, right? You got George Washington up top as this on top of rainbow. Right. He's sitting (laughs) in Zeus's place. Totally. Yeah, 100%. And they even they put uh, Benjamin Franklin is up there uh, as well. Uh, I think he's I think a Benjamin Franklin might be talking to. Uh, maybe he's talking to Athena because there's so many more characters around that rotunda. So we have Minerva, <laughs> goddess of wisdom. And Minerva is Athena. OK, so you Minerva think is the Roman Athena. Where is that? That's here. Right here. Yeah. Oh, I wow. Think... And I was going to say. Oh my goodness! What an I think that's Athena because she's got that spear, that crucial spear that she like. She does, you know, yeah. And she she's talking to Ben Franklin. So uh, real quick, I'll just summarize from the uh, from the Doctor Strange movie. We were able to actually associate the characters from Doctor Strange who were on the tribunal. We were able to correspond them with the amendments of the Constitution. Amendments one through eight are represented as caricatures in the film. 
And just when they're about to put Dr. Strange, who's wearing a Pluto, he's wearing the symbol of Pluto on his chest. He represents Pluto's return right now. We're going through a Pluto return from the founding fathers when they signed the declaration. We are at a full cycle of Pluto is right back where it started in uh, February uh, 20th of 2022. That's like all twos all across the board, two, 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 all the way. Mm -hmm. And we just came through that uh, return. So Dr. Strange is repping the Pluto. And he's on the tribunal and he's talking to uh, our constitutional amendments, but in comic book character form. Okay. And before the tribunal can complete uh, putting him, uh, deciding what to do with him, they get, uh, they get attacked by uh, the Scarlet Witch. And right. the Scarlet Witch, she represents the Eighth Amendment, which is unnecessary uh, uh, fines and punishment. And so Unusual, like, right? Right. So yeah. she's like irrational, in, irrationally charged and she's coming to uh, exact punishment. And then she commences to slaughter all of our constitutional amendments. And the way that she kills these caricatures of our amendments is incredibly poetic. And strangely, it has like this natural consequence, uh, poetic correspondence to what the amendment means. So like our right to bear arms is this rubber armed uh, Stretch Armstrong kind of guy it's, and it, she just pulls his arms until he runs out of ammunition so she uh, so he also represents 3D printing of, of firearms because he's made out of rubber you can just produce your own firearms at home now so he is both the printing press and your right to bear arms and she kills uh, uh, she kills him second anyway I'm getting off track but what was really crazy was I realized while I was doing the project and corresponding our constitutional amendments to caricatures in the film, I found out that they're also characters on the rotunda, which means in the crazy way that our constitutional amendments are archetypes. Mm. They are living archetypes and we uphold them and live by them. They rule over what is right and wrong Uh that's probably Hephaestus. Sorry, Gabe, I don't want to bother you. That's probably Hephaestus one. Is you it nailed Hephaestus? it. Yeah, right? Vulcan. Okay. Yeah. I have yeah. never seen this image before. Sorry. Because I haven't been inside. I went to Washington, like I said, many, many years ago now. Yes. This image would have fascinated me even then as much as it does now. Yes. I mean, but do you think that, the, I mean, I feel like it's so obvious that they've used a Greek pantheon but do you think that this is not uh what's the word i'm looking for like american like trying to connect with this great empire great powers or do you think yeah. that they worship these divinities as well both i think I, both yes i think this is the scaffolding this is the scaffolding of the western psychology of the western mindset and so the characters uh, are immortalized and kept alive by the fact that we believe that the right to freedom of speech is is intrinsic to the realm, you know, should not even be questioned. And so in a very fascinating way. Now, here's what's amazing is that it's we fused ourselves to the scaffolding of these archetypes uh, in in various ways. But what's amazing is the people who constructed this uh, this system of law, they knew that it would fall. 
and they know that it has an inevitable collapse. It has a life expectancy. Okay. And they and they know that we're coming into the late end of the this new Roman Empire. Uh, you know, uh, Francis Bacon with his, uh, you know, the new Atlantis and that whole vision. Well, they knew that it would only hold in place for 248 years, which is a plutonic return. It's interesting. I mean, for sure, no doubt that the American political system is built on the Roman political system and even the Roman Catholic Church, because if you look at St. Peter's Cathedral, or uh-huh. St. Paul's Cathedral in Rome at the Vatican, has the same dome that you guys are talking about, yes. has the same structure. Um, yep. So, yeah, I think that that's, yeah. I So I just, I'm, I guess my, the most curious part is that that there's that you that you have evidence that they may be worshiping these divine beings. Now, for me as a as a Greek historian, I would love to reworship these divinities. I mean, yes. in their old ways, you know, and yes, and maybe break free of some of the limitations. Yes, of monotheism, right? I, I love that's that. Controversial to say, but. Uh, but now that you're saying that they might also be worshiping, now I feel like, oh, no. <laughs> I know. I know. It's kind oh, of heartbreaking. No. <laughs> like, yeah, you want it to be personal, you want, you know, but yeah. there's something something kind of sucks to think that somebody else already got there and might be messing up or yeah. even painting a bad image on something that you are loving. Like perverting that. Exactly. Which, which the ancients held secret or secret. Yeah. secret and now it may be in some way yeah. manipulated or depra- depraved in some way. I know it is. A, it's it's tough. It's tough because I, I find myself in the same way. I attach to certain characters and then I find out that they have living embodiments today. And I'm like, oh, no, don't. I don't like them there. I would, you know, um, so uh, I think that something that I've done is I've taken the Greek pantheon, particularly, I'll tell you my process was, I took the story of Typhon. Okay. When, when Typhon came storming across the land and all of the gods were trembling in fear and they uh, they ran and hid in Egypt. And it was Pan, who is like an agricultural deity, mm-hmm. who gave them shelter or he was clever enough to tell them to change into animals so that they could be overlooked. And so uh, each one of the animals that they change into was actually kind of initiated me into finding the mystery, a deeper mystery of their archetype. And even their their planetary correspondences become really uh, revealed when they become uh, these Egyptian animals. Um, And so I took that story in the, the different animals that they changed into and their elemental correspondence to the planets and then I started to fuse it onto the Enneagram be- because there are uh, eight gods who run and hide. And the ninth god, Pan, he gives them shelter. And and then the dynamics of the roles that they play as that story rolls out, it puts them very powerfully into a personality quadrant of the nine stations of the Enneagram. In by doing that, I realized that I'm seeing in the Greek stories the uh, what I could I keep calling it the uh, the scaffolding or the the skeletal framework of the human psychology and the human experience, uh, which 
which was just really revelatory. And so it makes me think it makes me think because you're talking about pan pan occulted the other gods he occulted them he hid them away is this why they revere pan so much like you got crowley parsons like the hymn to pan like they all worship this this care it's like the satyr right he's like the half man half goat type entity yeah he always gets such a bad rep i find so he's a good guy i see your face you're like yeah yeah he is i mean uh yeah so okay so we have to separate the greeks from the founding fathers in the sense that i'm going to assume and again it's my assumption that the greeks had not foreseen that the founding fathers of the usa would use their gods in such ways let's say because they're about you know two thousand years apart let's say if not more okay so Pan originally, yeah, he's like, he's just a trickster god. He's a fun god. He hangs around with nymphs. He drinks a lot of wine. They have a lot of sex. He's the god, you know, he's a, he's a demi divine being of the wilderness. He's the wild, like he represents the wild, you know? And then I think what happened, especially with Christianity, is they really took him as a satanic symbol, yeah. Uh, you know, because now, like, look, that image is pretty much the image of Satan. Yeah. And that hurts me because he was not originally evil. Whoops, we're going to have to anyway. censor that for. <laughs> <laughs> can we, oh, can we show this on YouTube? I'm going to have to censor I, this out. I don't know, but the Greeks and Romans had a very, especially the Romans, the Romans had a very. Wait, raw... what's he doing to this goat? <laughs> oh man okay hold I mean, on. don't forget this was a time when zeus is coming down in a in a golden shower to impregnate women right you know? or a swan you ever see the swan and i can't remember the name of the woman's uh, that zeus so zeus is a swan and he has sex with uh i think it's Danae. Um, you would know you're the Greek expert. I know. <laughs> how great I am with names, you guys. Um, actually, that's one of the images that disturbs me the most is him as a swan trying to have sex with, with this queen. But anyways, yeah, so for them, this was not... Hmm, I don't want to say it was not unusual. I don't think that swans mm-hmm. were literally having sex with women. But they understood the, depra- the depravity of gods. Right. So, like for the Greeks, they accepted that the gods were um, sometimes so bored or cruel um, that they did some very cruel and depraved things. Mm-hmm. So they have a yeah. different understanding of the divine. For them, the divine can be flawed in the sense that the divine can be jealous, can be angry, can be cruel, can be unfair. Mm-hmm. So the Greeks and the ancients, I should say, really lived by those sort of like, let me offer as much as I can to this God and hope and pray that I win favor. Mm-hmm. Where I think in Christianity, for example, it's the opposite. God is always good, benevolent, right? right. No matter what I do, God forgives me. He doesn't there's rate very, people, but this God did. <laughs> yeah, like there's a very... You don't even have to do anything or offer anything. I mean, we don't offer sacrifice anymore. You know, you just have to be. So I don't know. Yeah. So if we're back at Penn, I think that he caught a bad rap. I think they took this mm-hmm. image um, and they blended it with Dante's Inferno and uh, oh, yeah. right. And all the other 
uh, Paradise Lost, like all those sort of Christian Lucifer talks, right? Yeah. They, then they gave him Poseidon's trident, had right. have a trident. Right, that's so true. Too much, you know? Totally, totally. Um, you know, I, I think that we don't, we don't hear the myths with a visceral enough uh, relationship. You know, for one, like Zeus turning into a, a, a swan to seduce a woman, uh, I think of that as a uh, having an erotic correspondence to feathers and using feathers in foreplay and in sexual, you know, for arousal. And uh, even the thing, like you said, golden shower. Some people are really into that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and with Pan, you know, goats, they use, uh, they use their smell to generate a sexual atmosphere. And, I, I, and it's disgusting to us in our modern day sensitivities. But goats literally, to court a woman, a goat will pee on his own face and then he'll s splash it around so that the smell and the pheromones the get her ready to go. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. I think that there was what a the lot What the fuck? Of... <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of, um, like, sexuality was not repressed in the way that we've repressed it through yes. sort of Christianity. Mm. I think that they had a way better sense of humor. I mean, they had these festivals where they had these comedians that were very raw. The Romans are even worse. Like if you ever read Roman comedies or comedians for what, we, well, at least what we have left, the sarcasm is so sexual. Uh, it's so like you're, you, if you read, like I've had to read some of it with my students and I was, I would be like, I don't know how appropriate this is because they just, they love those kind of stuff. But we may be looking at it now back, like we're looking back with a bit of a Christian bias. Um, oh, yeah. Right? How terrifying yeah. would it be if you saw this in the woods one night? <laughs> Can you imagine, bro? I'd kick the shit out of this thing if I saw now, Okay, when was this actually made or drawn? What's this, the date? Let's see here. Bernard Picard. 16 this is seven, yeah. 1754 yeah. yeah hold on hold on hold on let's see here da -da -da. Yeah. transform bernard i don't know so it's got two guys on here yeah the europeans actually the europeans did not do the greeks any favor because when they rediscovered <laughs> greek myth they really like created some art that was in their imagination quite quite depraved not to say that you know the greeks themselves didn't do some sculptures that are quite interesting yeah, uh, but this thing here that you've shown one, yeah, that's 16th century. So that's that's a Christian imagination of the story of the swan. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I want to share uh, one Im an image that I put together recently, Carla. Okay. That I that I've had you in mind for a while about this because uh -oh. <laughs> one of my my favorite stories has really, and one of my favorite characters is uh, Hephaestus. Okay, I love Hephaestus too. Vulcan. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he has so many like names and like, I, have you ever heard him called Arjun? Oh, no, I don't. I, uh, maybe. That might be like more of a Hindu derivative that Arjun yes. was, was like a, you know, a craftsman. He, I think Arjun in Hindu mythology, he made uh, Indra's net. It was maybe Arjun's net. 
But I think you're right. Things get a little, the further away from the source you go, the more kind of you have to make exceptions for what you think is, you know. Uh, uh, I think it's, it said a- Agni because it's spelled A A G N I. Oh, yeah. Agni. Thank you. Okay. Um, I needed to know that because that means fire, the fire. Yes, one. exactly. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so he's Hephaestos, he's Arjun, or he's Agni, and he's Ariga is the charioteer. Have you ever heard that name, Carla? I have, yes. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and you could probably go chronological. You could really stretch and make it chronological, like Vulcan begot Hephaestus, or maybe Hephaestus begot Vulcan, and then Ariga under that. And then there's even like a real-life historical character called uh, Erichthonius. And Erichthonius has a... the is just like one-to-one with Ariga in Hephaestus because he had serpent legs. He had lizard legs when he was born and he had to be, he had to go away from the society because they were uncomfortable by his appearance. And then he became a master craftsman and became the first one to construct a chariot. Hmm. And then he comes back to civilization and he's like riding on his glory in his new, in his new incarnation. So I wanted to share this with you. Vulcan is the god of the volcano. One of the most famous volcanoes, Mount Etna, is right at the tip of Mount Sicily, mm-hmm. is yeah. on Mount Sicily. Well, Ariga was, or Hephaestus, was kicked out of Olympus. Yes. And his volcano is getting kicked by the boot of Italy. Ha! Ha! It, it's so, wow. So, so on a map... He's literally getting kicked out of Olympus. Although he did return. And he comes back and say, yep, he gets kicked out two times by some accounts, right? Yes. Right. What do you think about his birth story? So. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's like, uh, he's an immaculate conception, isn't he? Exactly. Well, I don't know if it would even be an immaculate conception because. Hera has him parthenogenetically. Yeah. Right? Yes. So, so, uh, so I don't know what you, so I consider that parthenogenesis because that's the only word I have for women birthing without the help of men. She, she births him out of spite. She conceives him out of spite and births him out of spite. Of course, you, you probably know that later the Greeks sort of made him, uh, they said that he had a limp or that he was born, like you said, with, um, lizard legs or they have all these excuses because they wanted to say that he's not a hundred percent perfect yes lizard no legs contribution is that like a braxis kind of sort of a snake yeah, so it's, originally the story is that he can't walk or that one of his legs is not operating properly as hephaestus in the greek uh, but then over time people start to make up stories about like all his leg problems mm-hmm. uh, but really what that is is an kind of like a cover-up by the patriarchy, let's say, mm-hmm. um, that he was not perfect. He Because he's not, he's only from the woman, he's not 100% perfect. Oh, right. Right? Because yeah. the Greeks used to believe that uh, uh, women were uncooked well, eggs, right? Like they were uncooked eggs. That's the whole thing with the homunculus, because Pythagoras and Aristotle and all these guys, they... They were pre-formationist and spermism was a thing where they thought that pretty much sperm was the nectar of the gods. 
and that tied it, that ties into the homunculus because the homunculus to Paracelsus, at least in the 16th century, it was the it was perfection because it wasn't tainted by the menstrual blood of the woman, which was only seen as the material substrate. And they were he was they were all very misogynist back then, and and anything that had to do with women, like a basilisk, was the opposite of a homunculus, and the basilisk is born from the menstrual blood of a woman. Because it's got the poisonous stare, right? Because it kills you with just by looking at you. That's very Plato. I mean, the Plato literally said, like, you know, like I said, women are uncooked, sort of. They're not, they're men that haven't been cooked long enough in the womb. Because they don't have the appendage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was this concept. But they couldn't deny that Hera, from an older tradition, and apparently many other pre-Greek goddesses could create, like Gaia creates Mm. the entire world all by herself and then she creates uranus her consort these dudes were nerds because i mean women are beautiful and i don't think i could live without women so i don't know why they wanted to (laughs) like demean them to the point where like hey let's just make homunculus we don't need women well no i think no i think i don't think it's every dude i mean i don't i I don't want to say not all men on here but i don't think it was every i think what was happening is as soon as and this is a longer story i don't know if we have a, a time for all that story but as soon as um property started being handed down from father to son you have to have control over the reproduction system and the one way to have control is of course to diminish it from sacred to just animalistic let's say or organic and then you have to control it with virginity and all that history so That's i'm surprised cool. that they were like oh yeah game of thrones like the whole game yeah. of thrones thing where yeah. the and the newest one the house of the dragon they wanted to marry the uncle with the with the yeah. niece and all this stuff. And it was very yeah. incestual, all these things. And yeah. it goes back to, to maintain power. Right. Mm-hmm. Because in the, in this, in, I mean, George Martin just borrows from history. I mean, he's, you know, 100%. it's not something that's new. Yeah. He's a lizard person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's just borrowing from history. So that's not unusual. So I've been, uh, really. So yeah, this is the United States postal service. I like that. <laughs> And, oh, oh yeah, it is. Yeah, and it actually this this proves that all roads lead to Rome. Yeah, is what they, is what they're telling us with this symbol. And so uh, it is also a post and lintel, which is the old uh, the old construct for for the entrance to a house is very basic. It's just two posts and a lintel. Mm. And so when you want your mail delivered, you lift up the red flag to indicate. Uh, so, so that the spirit of the plague will pass will pass over your house and you'll find the favor of Yahweh. So, you know, uh, it's very interesting that our post office is uh, incorporating, uh, amalgamating all these cultural norms uh, in a very fascinating way. So I just thought I'd share that the post and lintel and the, uh, the this is the leg end. This is the leg end, the legend. This is the legend of legends right here. Is, wow. uh, is the history of Italy. So I just kind of threw all that together and I thought I'd share because I just love that Hephaestus literally is still getting kicked today off the, the, boot, the boot toe of Italy. Aww. And uh, so I've actually, I found Auriga the charioteer in the, in the star map. Okay. He, he has a home in the constellations and it is just off the corner of the bull. Um, on one of the horns of Taurus. Okay. In the shape of his uh, constellation is a pentagram. 
it's a, it's a pentagon shape. And so he's, he has a one, uh, he's carrying a goat over his shoulder and then his other hand is actually tucked behind his back and he has two baby goats in his other hand. So he has three kids. He's got kid knees. He's got two kids by his kid knees. And he's got another larger goat whose name is Kapia, who's, uh, it almost makes it look like he has a goat, two heads. One is a goat, one is a man. So all of these characteristics of Ariga the charioteer have really been uh, fulfilling a vision of the importance of this character because uh, without getting too lost in the weeds, there is a myth out there that uh, Benjamin Franklin initiated the signing of the Constitution in the middle of the night so that the birth of the country was actually occulted and we're under the sign of Taurus, under the bull. Hey, Taurus gang, what's up? Yeah, but you got it, bullseye. So, uh, and then everybody on the public side, so that's the private occulted history of the country. And on the public side, later on the next day, everybody thinks that we signed the Constitution under the light of day when the sun was high in the sky. And uh, and so... Uh, Benjamin Franklin, that, that day when everybody's signing, he was out of sorts. He seemed to be spacey. And the people asked him, you know, what were you thinking about? You seemed to be really lost in thought in there. He was probably tripping on the mushrooms still from the rituals from the night before. <laughs> when I think he had the Aldo Brandini family line help sign under the, under the bullseye, which is uh, Aldebaran. So the Aldo Brandinis have a claim on that star. And I think one of his co-signers was Aldo Brandini. But anyway, they asked him, why were you in such a daze when everybody's busy doing, you know, making history? And he says, you know, I was just totally fixated on Washington's chair. I can't tell if that sun that is embalmed, embossed onto the back of Washington's chair, I can't tell if it's a rising sun or a setting sun. And that's his quote. It's immortalized forever. And what is fascinating about that is, yep. Yeah, is he signed, he started the birth of the country on the early in the morning so that the country still had a lifespan to climb up. And if they had started the signing of the declaration at the height of the day, the only way the country could go was down. Ah, that's so cool. Met, so metaphorically, he was saying, I'm giving us a longer lifespan so the country can, the chariot can ride up to the pinnacle of the, of the annual declination of the sun and then later on we'll go through the fall which is 248 years later with pluto returning is this a mushroom cop it looks like a mushroom here that is interesting so it says uh rising sun armchair george washington used his chair for nearly three months of the constitutional conventions continuous sessions Benjamin Franklin is credited with immortalizing the chair at the close of the convention observing. I have often looked at the picture behind the president without being able to tell whether it was rising or setting. But now at, a, at length, I have the happiness to know that it is a rising sun and not a setting sun. So this is probably some sort of talisman that they were using for this ritual that they did. And, and it, it reminds me of something I'll get into here in a second. Uh, this is the most well-known version of the sentiments regarding the sun chair, but it is well-polished versions only. This well-polished version only dates to the 1987 State of the Union address by President Ronald Reagan, of course, Ronald Reagan, who was paraphrasing James Madison. Because Ronald Reagan is the guy who was 
infatuated with Manly P. Hall, right? And he was had an occultic circle, so of course it would be Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. to tell the story. Who was paraphrasing James Madison, who in turn was reporting the commentary he heard Franklin express. The original text as written into the federal record by Madison appeared as below. So this kind of sort of reminds me of the bathing of the stars, the alchemical process where the sun and the moon are bathing in the stars. Now, it's alchemy, so it's symbolic, and it's got a very dark connotation to it because the stars are, you know, the blood of certain you know what I'm saying? You know, like that that whole thing. And very interesting because this this kind of looks like a mushroom cap, like a golden teacher mush, mushroom cap there. And then obviously you have the face with the sun and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, thirteen. Eh. That's, that's lunar. That's a lunar system. I dig it. So, I don't know. For me, the sun. Uh, but OK, so how about for me, when I first see the sun in any in any sort of symbolism, of course, it reminds me of the halo, mm-hmm. right? It reminds me of the sun that kings. So kings used to wear the sun on their crowns, right? Your where, where is the halo from, though, Carla? It's from the mushroom, the veil. <laughs> I mean, Helios, Mithras, you know, all these ancient gods had uh, the sun on the back of their heads. Right. Um and it became a halo in Christianity. Yeah. Really, it's a symbol of royalty and monarchy okay. and nobility and like sacred blood. Yeah. Um, so, but then it became, when once it became a, a halo, it became sort of as a sacred symbol. So in the old days, kings used to wear a sun on the back of their heads. But once it became a halo under Christianity, they wore crowns. Instead yeah. of, they used to literally have like a halo thing on the back of their heads. Uh, yeah. Mithras is an interesting god as well. Totally. Yes, I think that Ariga is embodying Mithras hmm. in, a, in, a, in a very fascinating way because he's, he's jumping over the bull. Mithra, he either avoids the bull or sometimes uh, in some rituals he'll get run over by the bull, mm-hmm. uh, de- depending on where the initiate is. But also uh, uh, Ariga, who I, who is Hephaestus the charioteer, he's wearing the standard red cap, mm-hmm. which which involves uh, corresponds to the mushroom cults that you're getting at there, Juan. And check this: it's got the is that a swan? If I'm not mistaken, you got the sun and the moon bathing together. Mind you, this is yeah. alchemical, but then you have the swan here, the bird, and then I, swan, yeah. I saw also some other references to, oh, so you have a peacock in this one, and then I saw some other references to a swan as well up here. So you have the, the swan. Well, oh, the yeah, pe- there's a swan there. There's a the swan pe- there. The peacock would go to Hera. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You have, the, you have a dog, and the sun is either rising or setting in this one. That's a weird one. That's an angelic swan woman. There's so much mixed symbolism in mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And that's an alchemical uh, little furnace that it's on top right. of. Yeah. So, again, it's it's weird because I do spend a lot of time looking at alchemical plates like this. Like, look at this. Like, mm-hmm. what is this even supposed to What are they doing? You know what I mean? Like, it's, so it's that seems odd. like they are squeezing the man's like an MRI, really. But mm-hmm. it's for consciousness, right? 
Yeah, poss- yeah, possibly. Like they're taking, they're either taking something out here. This guy's. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the order of the optometrist where they would the copio cipher where they would do a pseudo surgery on the guy in order to initiate them in order to illuminate they were they were illuminated after the fact after doing this ritual the mm. pseudo operation oh. or something of some some nature so uh, cygnus is the constellation of the swan and it is in one of the four royal corners of the zodiac it's down in aquarius uh, so it's probably a royal heraldry is probably incorporated in that. A lot of the minor deacons uh, of the four corners, the Taurus, the Leo, the Scorpio, and the Aquarius, uh, they have royal heraldry tied in to what those constellations are often referred to as, uh, as have, they have four royal stars. So they make up the four corners of a piece of paper, of, of the, you know, the, uh, the official authorities of the realm that we're in uh it's interesting because now that you say that so so the swan when zeus is the swan he's actually the the woman is letta and letta is helen of troy's mother right so out of that union comes helen of troy uh and and polydeuces uh but also castor and clytemnestra come out of that union oh cool so Swan, Zeus' father, Leda, human, let's say, queen mother, and then these four children. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. never mind Helen being the so-called reason why they went to the Battle of Troy and all that nonsense. Yeah. Gabe, yeah. Can, we, can we start with Zeus on your political map? Start with Zeus and then go down the line. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, bef- right before that, can you pull up the most recent one I shot to you? Because uh, this is one more, I think, really good ingredient to bring forward. I've been researching the lunar standstills. And there are uh, lunar standstills are they're like an eclipse, except it's like a granddaddy eclipse. Okay. Like we all we always have eclipses uh, pretty regularly. And they're predictable, and they have been weaponized in the past. Like at the Battle of Tippecanoe, they told everybody that if you don't sign on for this big master battle for the end of days, then the sun will be blackened out. And then the sun got blackened out, and everybody had to conscript and go do the battle to please the the gods again. So they, you know, kind of like Apocalypto, where they just use the inevitable dynamics of the heavens for political means. And yeah. so I've been I've been researching these uh, lunar standstills in a major way, and what I have discovered is that the two nodes, the north node and the south node, they have locations on a zodiac. Yes. And, the, and those locations are super important. They're like a you could think of them as a psychological uh, umbilical cord or a, a crossing over point where you would. Uh, and it takes 18.6 years to get from one to the other. And so all of the stress and animosity and shadow work of the collective is like an offering to when we get to the node, because uh, huge storms and calamity are known to occur uh, more so than usual when we get close to these lunar standstills. Hmm. And so the cycles are kind of like a, a sigma wave. 
where we go lunar standstill, north node, south node, north node, south node. So we're going back and forth inevitably. But I think that sine wave is actually on a bigger sine wave. And so the last two years, we had more volcanoes than ever, record-breaking volcano activity. And I believe... And earthquakes, too. And you got it. And I believe, uh, so the next lunar standstill is in 2025. And uh, so we're rushing towards it right now, like a chariot. We're riding to up to the pinnacle of that sigma sine wave. And I think that there will be uh, many more earthquakes, volcanoes, storms, thunder, lightning. They're going to call it global warming. And just like they've done in Greek history, they're going to use it politically to be like, hey, it's these people's fault because they went on Sinai and signed the ten, new Ten Commandments. So we should go kill them because of the new Ten Commandments caused global warming. Or because you didn't sign the Ten Commandments, you caused global warming. So I think that we're seeing the lunar standstills being weaponized, and they're going to hold the whole world hostage and say that we have the policies that will make all this go away. If you don't join our side, then you have to die. Uh, so that's my theory is we are going to pretty depressing there, Gabe. I know. I know it's pretty far out, but there is precedent for this. Um, the battle over the city of Athens was, uh, I think that's something everybody should go look into. I just learned about it today and it blew my mind wide open because Neptune had come and he had laid claim to that territory and they were all, they had a contract with one God of the sea. And then Athena comes along and she has all this knowledge and wisdom to offer. And so she starts to make a claim on the territory and all the ladies are finding, uh, you know, fulfillment in a feminine goddess. And so they start to build up the Athenian uh, influence on the culture. And then a huge calamity strikes and they end up blaming the ladies. And they say, see, it's because we let you guys have a goddess in the temple and they took away their right to vote and the women lost their right to vote. And then the whole city goes through, uh, you know, all this torment, but it's, it's just natural disaster. It's going to happen. And then they end up blaming one person or the other, uh, male or female, black or white, Jewish. Well, not Athena Jewish. Wins that. So Athena challenges Poseidon, right? Yeah. yeah. And she wins. Ultimately. Ultimately she wins. But the irony though, is that Athena doesn't do anything for women. I would not consider her a woman's goddess because she's always taking the side of men. Like she, in Aeschylus's play, she says, I have no mother, which is not true. She has a mother, Matisse, that Zeus swallows. Right. And she she is born out of his head, right? When her yeah. cracks his head open. Yeah. And so she says, you know, I have no mother and I have no loyalty to women. So I always find her, I find her a bit of a misogynist in a way. She's always mad at women. She punishes them all the time. Medusa, Arachne, a ton of the others. Yeah. Uh, Cassandra, she never shows up for Cassandra while she's being dragged away. All these kinds of things. So Athena's kind of, I don't want to say that she's not nice, but she's trans. Originally, she was a goddess of wisdom. Yes. And perhaps in favor of women. But I think once she became the symbol of Athens... Or yeah. the patron of Athens, she becomes very masculinized. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, she's no longer interested in women. And and Orestes, when he's running away, 
because he killed his mother, Clytemestra, uh-huh. daughter of Swan and Leda. Okay. He runs and hides from the Furies and he appeals to Athena to forgive him of the blood, uh, the family blood sin or taint. And she plays judge and jury there. That's why I always think of her as Liberty because she plays judge and jury. Um, and she says, oh yeah, I, I for- okay, I forgive you. You're forgiven. Your sin is forgiven uh, because it's actually worse to kill your father, which is what Clytemestra did to Agamemnon, than for a son to kill his mother. So anyway, she basically says men can do whatever they want. Yeah. Sins are not as bad hey. as the women's sins. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I so think... she sides with she sides with him. She 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 doesn't side with women. Yeah. I think you're gonna like her spot on the Enneagram. She's mm-hmm. a she's a perfectionist. Yeah, they, that would fit. Yeah. And yeah. uh and perfectionists get a lot of animosity from all the other stations in the Enneagram. Uh so her personality is in her shadow, the perfectionist shadow is wrath. Which I think is, I think Aries is like her wrathful shadow side, her counterpart. Uh, but oh, you're, gonna, you're gonna love. I don't know if you listen to my my one on Medusa, where Medusa and Athena are sort of a dual divinity. Right. Athena is the rage, where Medusa is the raging shadow, and Athena is the rational. Yeah. Um, but, but the interesting thing is that Athena wears Medusa on her chest, almost right. like you're wearing your shadow self. Owning it to others, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could be here for a few hours, Gabe. Oh man, totally, totally. <laughs> Can you bring that last one back up? I just, uh, I, I, so the word node is, um, it's it's deeply and uh, encoded in so many things. But so this is a, uh, up top. You have a standard image of the seraphim, and I believe that the seraphim is actually encoding the dynamics of the lunar standstill cycle. And so uh, this is also how a standard eclipse works as well. It's it's these two points on the zodiac where uh, once we get to the perfect alignment, the shadows just happen to cast uh, either down on Earth or up onto the moon or occults the sun. Um, so It would make sense too, Gabe, because all eyes are on these... Well, it's not an eclipse. Is it an eclipse? Because all eyes are always on eclipses, either lunar or solar. Right. And it's because, covered and in you, eyes. And you have to be careful because mm-hmm. if you stare at it, you'll go blind. So mm-hmm. it, it has this, uh, it's a forbidden fruit. You can't, you can't partake of it or else you'll be punished. So, so the term nodes is, is, it's everywhere I look now. Uh, and it's really hard to stay linear here, but we even have lymph nodes in the uh, human anatomy. And so we what is really fascinating is we actually have an upper lymphatic system and a lower lymphatic system. They don't connect in the middle. So our lymph system has like a Artemis and uh, Apollo, the two archers, uh, correspondent with each other. One, you know, one with the golden bow, one with the silver bow. So I see the bows as having strong correspondence with the symbols for the nodes, because they look like a drawn bow, uh, they're also the symbol on the back of a cobra. A king cobra has this That's right. loop, this loop-de-loop symbol. Mm-hmm. And now this is really fun because 
Uh, Hephaestus, Auriga, the charioteer, he is stationed in the part of the Zodiac where the North Node resides. And he has two legs that are serpent-like legs. Well, in uh, Greek culture, they actually called the node, one of the nodes was the head, and the other node was called the tail. Mm. And so for him to have legs of a serpent means that he is, and that is the spot in the sky where these lunar standstill cycles reside, where they are found. Also, the giants uh, had legs just like that. Greek giants nice. also had legs like that. Um, That's great. And they would shake the earth. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, so as these nodes become, as we approach the node, the earth will shake more. We will have more earthquakes, more uh, volcanoes, more w w storms, and what they're going to call global warming. But it's just a natural inevitability of the cycle as we get closer and closer, building up to these nodes. Interestingly, Neptune is the one that in Greek is called the earth shaker. Yes, I I'm thinking he's the south node. I think he's down in the uh, uh, near Sagittarius. Uh, I think he's much like uh, it's between Scorpio and Sagittarius. It's Ophiuchus. Mm. And uh, I think that he gets that underworld credit for the uh, for the south node. And then up above at the north node is the more uh, golden. Uh, the other charioteer uh, that, that shakes the earth would be in the summer season. Uh, so one one other really fascinating thing is I learned that uh, the word firearms is an anagram for seraphim. Why and is so, that, Gabe? A seraphim is a it's a one of the uh, types of angels. Yeah. And it's uh it's uh it's described as a craft flying through the air and uh and people have you know when they see them it's basically early UFO accounts. Mm -hmm. And they would call them a seraphim, but it's fascinating to me that the that firearms is an anagram for seraphim because they use the term firearms in propaganda to mm -hmm. to extract our fear to for us to make an offering of oh no not firearms again. Uh, and so I always tell people, you know, you need to write up your affidavit that says that I do not have any firearms. I never have. I have arms. I have bare arms because the word firearms is a captured term. It's trademarked. And if you consent to having your weapons called firearms, then it belongs to them because they own that term. We have bare arms. You've never had firearms. You're playing their game. You got to control the language. So, so, you, uh, so you think, Gabe, that fear, which is clearly something that's been harvested, yes. uh, is an offering Yes. To these Greek gods in the modern world. I do. And each each god has a different flavor of offering. <laughs> okay. Yes. Can we get so, into that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Uh, let's see. I'll shoot you. I'll send this one first. Because uh, I have the 12 Olympians pulled up, which obviously another... Another thing that this can be in, in interpreted as is uh, the 12 astrological signs as well, which we right. know the elites are very fond of. J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, Flagler, all those guys were very fond of uh, astrology because they think, what's the quote, right? 
uh, millionaires don't use astrology, billionaires do. You got it. So I do I, think that that's because astrology is a more, I mean, I don't know if this is nice to say, but I feel like it's a more authentic tradition. As mm -hmm. I kind of feel that the ancient gods are a more authentic tradition. But that's my historian perspective because I would prefer to live in a time that predates some of the monotheistic traditions or the last thousand years. Yeah. So I feel like I'm a little I'm a little irked that if what you're saying is true, they've manipulated uh -oh. things that are fantastically magical. Let the anger out, Carlo. Let it out. Into something that is, like I said, depraved or perverse. Totally. Well, that's like, that. That's their goal, though. The inversion of that's what the what the black mass is. It's the inversion of a regular Eucharist, and I mean, use your imagination. The inversion of it, and and that's what they they've done for forever. You know, mm -hmm. they they take it and they invert it and they pervert it, right? And they go from yeah. it's transgression. You know what I mean? Like you will. You can be so do what thou will. You can be so bad no matter what you do, but eventually you're still going to reach that same divinity regardless of what you've done. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, I'm with you, Carla. I'm kind of pissed too. I, you know, these things should be natural. They should be uh, uh, autonomous to the individual, and it should be a votive offering. You well, should want to bring your your intentions forward as an offering independent of any control system. I agree. I think it's quite nefarious, but I think we can crack the code okay. and I think we can set all these gods free <laughs> and, and ourselves as a, as a beautiful result. So, so, uh, 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 Juan, what you were saying about the 12 stations of the Zodiac, that's a, that's something that is really important as well. You know, Hercules has the 12 endeavors that he has to go through. Well, I actually listened to those 12 endeavors today, this morning in preparation, and I believe that the cycle of the 12, of the, the cycle of the stations of the heavens actually are complete when he gets to his ninth endeavor. And the remaining three endeavors have been added on culturally. They're excessive. He's actually completed the, a whole circle around the sky upon the ninth endeavor. And this is because, I believe, the old uh, system of keeping track of time was a nine-month calendar. It mm. was not. It was totally a different layout from what we uh, from what we conceive of today. And so he goes through his endeavors. He starts with the lion, and then he ends off. Uh, I forget what number nine is, but the ninth one is in Gemini, which uh, com uh, brings him to full completion there. And then the remaining three, I think there's a mystery with the extra three that have been added on. And I haven't sussed that out yet, but I think, but by the end of that one, you're going to love this because he becomes the full metal alchemist. Hey, yeah, so buddy. the, and, and another thing, Hercules is also a 10 month baby. So, cause that's like, be. that's also because, and the whole nine symbolism back to Pythagoreanism is it's, it's the, the seminal number, so it's the sperm, it's the the you know nine months out of the year. Man is nine twelfths of a of a circle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's that number that falls short. It's almost there, but then not quite. You know, it's the right before the ten, which is holy, holy, 
to the Pythagorean. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's nine and and he was a ten month baby, which that's also, I guess, some people are born at the ten month and it's they get more powers. I'm not 100 percent on that, but that I've heard it before. Carla, have you ever heard that in uh, Greek uh, isopsophy or gamatria, they, they used to, uh, the more powerful words would have a, uh, a collective sum that added up to a nine? Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard of that, but I have heard of this concept of adding, of the power of words and the words having mathematical power. Yes, but not okay. these words, but not which yeah. words, sorry, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just looked up Hercules' ninth labor is uh, Hippolyta's belt. Okay, okay. The belt of Hippolytes, which is the, uh, or Hippolyte, whatever, uh, which is the uh, the uh, Amazon. Oh, right, right. Right? Yes. Yeah, so that's his ninth labor. That's interesting. That actually kind of makes me think that puts it in Orion because Orion has the belt, which is actually back set to Taurus again. Maybe there's three extra seated throughout the, the progression because that would bring uh, number 10 would be to Gemini, 11 would be to uh, Cancer, and then 12 would land back on uh, Leo. I haven't pulled up here the the labors. Is it well, there's 12? There's nine there, so that's Hippol- Hippolyta. Interesting. And then the cattle, those are the last three. The cattle? Cerebrus is the last one. Okay, that's okay. So that's the Canis Major and Minor are minor deacons of Gemini. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I might have to do a whole show on this because I think there's some that might have to get shaken out. Uh, and then those remaining three probably have a lot of. Uh, you know, maybe the story of bringing in the Christian, the Christian uh, calendar, uh, because I, I feel that what we see is uh, a culture that was adhering to a nine-month calendar, and we're looking at it through a twelve-month calendar lens. But do we have any evidence that the Greeks were actually using a nine-month calendar? Because I'm not sure that we do, Gabe. I wonder, I wonder, because it's called, it's called the fasty calendar. Yeah. And, um, it was, it does divide 360 days into a whole nother construct of format. It's like eight day weeks with five week long months. And instead of naming the days after gods or deities, they actually named them alpha alphabetically. The days of the week were a through H and then, uh, so the for, the whole format of it. But what's kind of neat is that with a forty day month instead, now we can see why forty days and forty nights were so important in biblical in biblical lore, is because they were actually adhering to an old t- form of uh, of of timekeeping. And a forty day span is actually a Venetian retrograde. I think that's its most sacred harmonic significance is 40 days is Vena ration. It's a rational proportion of Venus when she does her little backwards dance. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, my, I'm not an expert in calendars. Mm-hmm. Um, that 40 day and 40 nights makes sense in a way. 
Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that the Greeks used it. We'd have to, we'd have to, I'd have to do some research on that. We'd have to do some research on that and see. All right. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I know that they have different festivals and month, month long festivals. And of course, different festivals from different gods that last mm -hmm. sometimes a month, but uh, an exact sort of date calendar. I'd have to, I'd have to do some research before I really say, Oh yeah, this is the way it was. So, so according to we keep idea, it was, there was a whole bunch of different calendars by region. And I looked through all this and it's just, it's our regular 12 months. It looks like, but then obviously they had a festival calendar, civil calendar. They had a whole bunch of different types, but it says the Greeks as early as the time of Homer appear to have been familiar with division of the year into 12 lunar months, but no intercalary month embolimos or day in is then mentioned with 12 months of 354 days so again according to this they had a regular kind of a regular-ish calendar that we have today but yeah that sounds again, about right yeah well, i'm sorry i thought i had it pulled up but anyways yeah yeah you get the i want i wonder if uh the nine month calendar was uh was agricultural or egyptian uh healing <clears throat> relating to when Typhon came and the gods had to go and hide in Egypt and they put on masks and there were nine of them hiding. And so mm -hmm. I, th I think of it as almost you, maybe when like one theory I've ha always had is like Typhon represents monotheism huh. and mono monotheism is coming with like, you know, the 19th dynastic Egypt and uh, Akhenaten is going to like lay waste to the old, uh, animal worship in the old system, and he's going to do a grand reset. And so Typhon represents this regression of pantheism to lay low and hide out and even uh, uh, instill the wisdom into uh, animals, something immortal that'll last and can be unpacked later. It's a familiar. Uh, that the Egyptians. Yeah. So wait, that story would be something the Greeks would tell or the Egyptians? I'm not sure the Egyptians were that interested in Greek mythology. Well, I agree. I agree. I I think that it's the agricultural class of the of Egypt. So hmm. like, you know, the higher courts, they're burning and pillaging the the uh the pantheistic system, but mm -hmm. the agriculturalists are like, "Yo, I'm not going into town anytime soon because mm -hmm. the mon monotheism uh, culture cleansing is raging in the city. So let's just lay low until everything's cool again. And then we can maybe bring these stories back to life and unpack them after this rampage of monotheism. It's weird. Cause here the, I have early Roman calendars, which the Romans borrowed parts of the earliest known calendar from the Greeks. The calendar consisted of 10 months in a year of 304 days. So the Romans seem to have ignored the remaining 61 days, which fell in the middle of winter. The 10 months were named Martius, Aprilis, Maius, Janius, Quintilis, Sextilis, September, October, November, and December. Oh, that's so confusing. That is. So and then, of course, Julius and Augustus come later. Yeah. So I think I think for some of that, you need like a chronological timeline to kind of see how that shifts. Um, because then the, the Romans themselves shift it again and rename stuff as well. Totally. totally. Yeah, that's, 
that's that would be a lot of work too, Gabe, because that's it would. Yeah. I got a I got a buddy who's really into calendars. Mm-hmm. Uh so maybe he and I will put our heads together one of these days on that. Uh, to see that. I'd love to yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah. So uh uh to the Enneagram here, uh yeah, I've uh it's kind of a long story to tell how I came to these uh, stations, but I wanted to run them by you, Carla, and see how they how they resonated with you. Okay. Uh, you know, in the story of Typhon, you know, I have Zeus there as the number seven. He's got the ram horns on his head there. Yeah. And in the story of Typhon, I think he needs he ends up removing himself from that enthusiast, epicureal, gluttony position because he's challenged by a number eight, a challenger, which uh, it's so hard to stay chronological. So he was born out of Zeus, was his father, was the one who was uh, in his way. And he needed to conquer Zeus at first to, or I'm sorry, he had to conquer Kronos to become Zeus, to gain gain his position. So I have an image of Kronos in place here, just kind of showing that, uh, you know, Kronos was the challenger of the time and he had to conquer him to become, uh, he had to use uh, craftiness and to defeat Kronos. Okay. So Kronos is kind of in that challenger leader position at first, but they, as the stories unfold, depending on what story you, you're in, they will switch roles. But the cool thing about them moving through their roles and their uh, dynamics is that it follows the personality tendencies of the Enneagram. They don't just go to any position. He literally follows from the seven position. He goes across and he has to become the uh, he has to become a one uh, when he gets challenged by Typhon. So he becomes the leader role. He becomes a perfectionist. He has to engage his wrathfulness to do battle. And what is really fascinating fascinating about Zeus. Uh, having that direct crossover line to the station of the one is that um, the mathematical uh, meaning of one divided by seven brings forward this amazing truth. Uh, and that truth is the uh, the seven stations. It's called a heptad. Uh, and if you if you don't include the triangle, you'll get this number. You get zero point, and you can watch it go down. You start with a one, drops down to the four, and then the two, and then it goes across to the eight, drops down to a five, and then goes to a seven, and then goes back to the one. So the 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 significance of the letter Q, 17, encodes mathematically one divided by seven, which then unpacks into zero point one four two eight five seven one four two eight five seven one four two eight five seven forever it goes on and on forever and okay. so the so the significance of that dynamic of going from a seven and a one in their relationship to each other is actually unpacks to reveal the enneagram because when you repeat those numbers over and over eventually you're going to see that there's never a three a six or a nine so the three six nine that was never repeated in the one divided by seven is uh, it's occulted or hidden, removed from the perpetual sequence of this enneagram system. Okay. And so, 
I just think that's really beautiful. That's one of my first realizations is that he didn't just move to any personality station. He had to move into that wrathful role and he had to become like Aries, you know, probably pre, I think Aries isn't in the story of the, of um, Typhon. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. No, it, I can't, I can't it, remember who's the Zeus, Poseidon. Yeah, I can't remember all of them, but yeah. no, I don't think Ares is in there. So, uh, so, uh, so he comes uh, back down to the seven in times of peace where he can go get his freak on and be, you know, the Zeus we all know and love, mm -hmm. uh, the enthusiast with this gluttonous shadow. So the red print on all these stations, I added the red print, and that is the shadow aspect of each of these personality types. Hmm. And I believe that, um, I'm coming to believe that the these Greek personas of the human psyche, the collective human psyche, that they consider that shadow aspect almost like an offering. So, you know, if you are if you are dealing with glutton as a as a problem in your life, then you don't want to go talk to Hera about it. You wouldn't want to go talk to Aphrodite about your glutton. It would be appropriate to take your issues of glutton specifically to a temple of Zeus and and maybe have some sort of sacred exchange with the spirit of that uh, aspect of the human uh so it's, it's their version of an Enneagram by worshiping these different entities. But where do all the extracurricular ones stand in? Why would they add? Because they have a bunch. I mean, there's 12. You're totally right. I think the other ones fit in here as well. I, I think there's like there might be a secondary to Zeus. There's probably another enthusiast, but he's not as principal as Zeus is. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, oh, I, there are examples here down on the achiever with number three. You know, I have uh, Dionysus as an achiever. Um, mm. Now, there's something that's not indicated here. I gotta, I gotta maybe make this clear about the enneagram. Something that's really important. It has three segments. It's divided into feel, think and act yeah i was looking at that because can yes. you can you really quick break mm -hmm. down for those that don't know what the enneagram is like yeah. like a layman terms quick overview yes. since we're going to be referencing it because totally. i had never heard about it until we did that one episode forever ago yeah and apparently it's a real thing but it's also yeah, yeah. the sacred geometry <laughs> And, it is. Uh, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, it's origin is kind of obscured in mystery as well. They, you know, they track it back to these really remote Sufis and uh, Gurchiff was a, one of the people who helped bring it forward. Uh, he spent time in St. Petersburg. Uh, but uh, the, so the Enneagram has uh, collected meaning over time, but I believe it, uh, it had the potential all along to be used as a personality matrix to potentially predict people's decision-making in a fascinating way. Uh, considering if you use a carrot or a stick, the personality will either move one direction or the other. And it, is, it has a lot of predictive value in that. In that. So 
if you wanted, you can take tests on the on the Enneagram. I don't recommend that you do them online because you're probably getting data mined. We've probably already been data mined. I think our Enneagram score is already our uh, social credit score. I think it's been weaponized and used in uh, marketing against us, uh, not fully disclosed, but used against us. But one good way to break it down is that some people, their principal uh, reaction to a situation is either to feel first, to think first, or to act first. And so if you're a feel first, you are more likely to fall into a four, uh, two, three, or a four, a helper, an achiever, or an individual. And then if you're a think first kind of person, you will have a tendency to land as a thinker, a loyalist, or an enthusiast, a five, six, or a seven. But if you're uh, impulsive or rash or uh, not into feeling or thinking too long, and you don't want to get stuck in analysis paralysis, then you will likely score as a eight, nine, or a one, is that is the body or the instinct or the uh, the act uh, grouping of the of the matrix here. Okay. And in different situations, you very likely will fall in a whole another uh, personality type. Like when you're around your parents, you're not going to have the same tendencies as when you're with your lover. You know. Okay. Uh, so different situations will put you uh, to will help you embody a different uh, proclivity behaviorally. And there are many synonyms for each station. Like I only have one or two words to describe each station, but they have lots of synonyms as well. They kind of broaden it into a, a larger umbrella of behavior patterning, but behavioral patterning. Uh, and so what is the pattern? Let's say you pick a number, whatever number it is. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific pattern that can be predicted? Yes. Like to which number you go next and then to which number you go next. That's what you're saying. Yes. It's really remarkable. And it, it there is a lot of research and like uh, proving it out. You have to basically prove talisman. it nine, nine times. Yes. So they pinpoint one of these archetypes right one of these gods they put them Mm -hmm. out there and they're able to already tell which move is next so it's like a real life game of chess a sort of talisman some magical operation and then throw in the lunar cycles into all this and bada bing bada boom you have a whole ceremony ritual and they're able to mine your energy or whatever it is for what ends gabe where where are they taking all this information where are they inputting it what where is the homunculus at where are they making it <laughs> well uh, if anybody wants to look into it it's called the uh, integrating and disintegrating enneagram theory or uh, if even easier way to find it is the two arrow theory the two arrow theory it indicates that if you like we were talking about the relationship of the seven to the one and then it drops down to the four so seven, one, and four have the vector on the one, right? And so if you're a one and you're in a stressed out situation, you will actually uh, lean into a enthusiast. You'll look for an enthusiast in your life to help you solve the stress, and you'll be repulsed by an individual. If an individual comes with individual mentality and behavior, you're going to be like, that's the last thing I need right now. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a situation that things are going well, so this is the carrot versus the stick. 
This is the hook and the flare that the Pharaoh holds. So if things are going well and you're in an enticing situation, you'll actually be repelled by the enthusiast and drawn into the individual. You'll look to them for guidance. Uh, or, or you might make the decision, a better decision for yourself that is drawn towards the tendencies of an individual. It is so dynamic. It is fascinating. And Gurchev, the guy who brought this forward, he says it's very important that you don't get stuck, that you don't believe that you are stuck in any of these corners. The Enneagram has to stay alive. It has to stay alive. What and that f- means that... It's like a, like a mando, like, like it takes your... Con- wait, don't get stuck? He says that? He says it has to stay moving. It has to stay dynamic. Uh, otherwise, people will believe that like, oh, I'm always a one. And I'll use the fact that I'm a one as an excuse not to move towards the four or so, as an excuse to vilify sevens. And you'll just get stuck in that, in that mm-hmm. dynamic. But you have to be willing to shift and, uh, and you have to be brave and move into uh, an uh, integrating uh, way of life. And it could potentially, I think of this as the three moiter, the three fates. Mm-hmm. And these are the chords and the mm-hmm. strings that are uh, the tune and the, the tune that the string makes is either pleasing to your ear and will pull you into a beneficial uh, decision, or it's discordant and will lead you to repel you to move away from a beneficial decision. So, because what I'm hearing here, because this says it all right here, is a model of the human psyche. So they've literally are able to, like I said, determine your next outcome, which we know that that's what AI is right now. That's the maybe the modern day Enneagram where we don't even need to take the test. The, The reason that you see certain ads at a certain point in time is because the AI has already predicted what you're going to think of in the long run so that it is a model of the human psyche which is principally understood and taught as the topology of nine interconnected personality types although the origins and history of many of the ideas and theories associated with the enneagram of personality are a matter of dispute contemporary enneagram theories are principally derived from the teachings of the bolivian psycho spiritual teacher oscar Ichazo from 1950s and the Chilean psychiatrist Claudio Naranjo from the 1970s. Naranjo's Naranjo's yeah theories were also influenced by some earlier teachings about personality by George, whatever his last name is, and the fourth way. Where does Young and all these guys fall in with this? With this, because this is really interesting. Because it, essentially, yeah. it's a way of being again predicting. And I thought that I've been led to believe that astrology was that, where it was, again, a a map yes. of kind of sort of the same thing, the psyche, I guess you could say, the because it relates all your, you know, every astrological sign has its own attributes. So I'd be interested to see mm-hmm. where Jung and maybe Freud or somebody falls, maybe not, maybe not Freud, but Jung definitely, where yeah. they fall into this. Uh, well, part of what brought me to even uh, conceiving of doing this, uh, like doing a psych profile on the Greek gods, you know, it's like really <laughs> kind of came out of nowhere. Because the word comes from Greek too, right? Meaning nine. Yes, Enea means the nine, yeah. So uh, essentially Carl Jung was uh, brought in by Alan Dulles, 
before it was called the CIA, it was the OSS back then. And Alan Dulles asked Carl Jung to do a, psych a psychological analysis of the Nazi regime and the guys at the top who were calling the shots. And he was using Jung uh, as a psych profiler so that they could predict their decisions. And uh, when he did that, he gave Carl Jung the agent number 488. And so agent 488 is Carl Jung's spy name. And uh, I just think it's really fascinating that uh, they were using a systematized uh, means of predicting other people's decisions that long ago. Mm. And But Carl Jung's system was more complicated than this. Uh, and I think he might have diversified something like this into something a little more nuanced and more detailed. He has a 16 stationed uh, circle with uh, different, different personalities that are uh, similar but different. Uh, it is much more complex, the one that Carl Jung uses. And today, when you go to get a job and fill out an application, they're actually using Carl Jung's early work uh, that has been embellished on in modern day context to test how honest you are. And so the exam that you take to get a job, the honesty test, that's very much what Carl Jung was giving to Alan Dulles when he did a psych like honesty test for a job. Look at what, what they, look at what episode I dropped today too. <laughs> MK ultra. <laughs> <laughs> we got into that about Carl Jung and his play i didn't know he was involved in the cia until we did this episode and that's literally the episode i dropped today so nice we don't take an honesty test in canada oh that's good Is i've never heard of an honesty test before that's what they called it when i was younger oh. today i think they they probably call it something else i mean it's uh i think tracks t-r-a-c uh it's in my phone which i i would have to cut out to use it but uh i think it's t-r-a-c or t-r-a yeah t-r-a-c hmm. and I, is the acronym which is funny because it's tracking your tendencies and your likelihood to make certain decisions so track wow. testing is for athletic competition so i don't know if it's that oh uh, that's not it let me see i don't have it on my computer it's in my phone the the carl young based uh, it has introvert and extrovert. It tests if you're an intro introvert or an extrovert. And then based on that, it like goes to the next. Topology uh, test. It says young topology test, personality test based on young and Briggs Myers topology. That, that, that's the one. Thank you. Thank you. I've taken those personality tests before, but I mean, they're not great. Yeah, Mine says I'm a piece of shit. So yeah, I'm not a fan <laughs> of them either. I think I, I, I think I suspected Carl Jung had to diversify or over, or complicate something so that he could actually uh, do more work, have, you know, more, a longer career path. I think this is like a very simplified system of predictive personality matrix. And the one that Carl Jung has seems to be really like overcomplicated, I think. I have to disagree uh, with this system because I feel that even even human nature how are you able to put a a like conscious like if you think about consciousness it is everything how are you able i feel like they're trying to put a label on that in in some which way 
which I don't think is possible. And to say that somebody can, I don't know, maybe that's the whole thing with MK Ultra. Maybe that's why that's how they were able to achieve it through systems like this. You know what I'm saying? Like get into the psyche of the person and learn the tools in order right. to be able to break a person down. And it just reminds me of the the show Love is Blind. They just had like this reunion on Netflix and they were using like gaslighting on this guy, the whole entire reunion. And it turned out that the chick was a piece of shit at the end of it. But the the entire hour long thing, they were all just on top of this guy until he broke down at the very end. You could tell that he was questioning his own sanity towards the very end of it. So they, they drove him to the brink of questioning your own sanity. Like, oh, you called me fatter. It was like something dumb. Like, oh, you called me fat. You told me not to eat this X, Y, Z. And the guy's like, I literally don't remember that happening. And towards the end, he was like, hey, I'm so sorry for all the things I did. And like, just really, it was like almost like a humiliation ritual in front of millions and millions of people that this poor guy had to undergo. And at the end, you could literally tell he was crying. He was really broken at the end of it all. And I don't know. Again, they put this out there for the world to see. And the world is a stage. So I don't think that psychology did us any favors. Certainly, psychology has taught us and taught them whoever they are to control, mm. <laughs> to control to control i mean i don't think that it's that hard to control humans we are in a way predictable mm -hmm. and and yet also very unpredictable bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then place a five dollar wager on any sport you'll receive 150 dollars in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store check out daily promotions same game parlays live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. So That's what know, I'm saying. Like, Right? There's this... I guess on average, let's say, we're predictable... Um, with like, if the parameters are right, kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they say control the environment, right? Ways, right. yes. Well, that's where the that's where the the seraphim comes in, where they know at these certain nodes. Because check it out, you were you were mentioning about the unpredictability and the strengths of all these storms. Well, we just had Hurricane Nicole, and I promise you, I promise you. That I didn't, I had zero idea about the hurricane coming to hit Florida until a day before. And the reason I found out was because I went on Facebook and I saw somebody posting like, oh, careful with this system. And usually I look at the date and I go, oh, that was 14 hours ago. That's weird. So then I open up my NH, NHC website and there was a hurricane right outside. of, And everybody that I asked, my neighbors, my family, everybody, my wife was like, where did that even come from? And yeah. I'm, 
I, 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 I was like, I do not even know where it came. It literally manifested, obviously not from nothing, but it felt like that for, for us, at least for my family and my neighbors who were like, what does her, I called somebody else. I was like, yo, you know, there's a hurricane coming. They're like, what? I was like, yeah, check the, check the, the news it's coming. And it's yeah. like that, that sort of thing where how you were saying it, it's around these times we had the elections coming up right before mm-hmm. that, right before the hurricane hit. So did that, does that play a role into the, I think it all goes back to that loosh, that energy, the way that you're able, cause energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be transformed. So take the energy that's already there, transform it and, you know, put some intent behind it. Boom. You got a ceremonial uh, setting every, every, every year. The, the elections are at the same time every single year. They, you know, they already know what's up. So it's that energy gets pushed out into the ether and it comes back that same time of year. Boom. And, okay. and you just, you know what I mean? So what? Okay. If that's the case, I guess my question is what tools are they using? Or are you just saying that that energy, whatever it is, if it's fear or if it's uncertainty, whatever, it's floating in the air and that's the offering? Or are you saying that there are tools that then harvest that energy and offer yeah. it? Yes. Something else. Yeah. They're able I, to funnel that energy. Yes. And I think that uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of, uh, of a ritual that I'm pretty sure I, uh, you will agree is an embodiment of uh, Hephaestus and the mythology of Hephaestus. It just happened on the world stage and everybody consumed it, but nobody had the context to realize that this was like a theatrical reenactment of the Hephaestus storyline. Um, and it's being used in a nefarious way because I love Hephaestus. I love the stories. I love these characters, but they're putting uh, people that I'm not, uh, I'm not so inclined to admire in the role of these, uh, of these mythological characters. Uh, can you bring that most recent one up, Juan, that I shot you? And this is, this breaks my heart. But it will make sense because you know Hephaestus' story and you know it well. And you'll see the ingredients all line up in, in, uh, in a way that is undeniable, I think, once, uh, once the ingredients come together theatrically. And, and it, to, to add some context to what Carla was asking, the technology I believe that they use, if you look at any talismanic magic grimoire that that's the whole that's the whole premise behind the charging of the talisman the astrological alignment and then add extracurricular things in there and boom you have a charged talisman maybe that chair that that washington was sitting on that one day was charged with and it's immortalized now it's immortalized for forever it's got gold did it have gold on it i mean it's got gold on it that's all chemical it's all i i believe and I say this all the time. I'm sure people are tired of hearing it, but it's all I relate everything back to an alchemical process. I believe that modern day science is just alchemy rebranded. They just change, you know, quantum funneling and tunneling and da, 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 all this stuff. They just changed the name of it. And it's the spooky action at a distance that that we're really focusing on here. But, yeah, I think that it's a it's a lost tech, Carla, I believe, right, when it comes to the occult. And I believe they charge talismans and they do weird, freaky stuff with them, too. <laughs> okay. So, so this one, it's a little blurry, but this is a reenactment of Hephaestus uh, trapping Hera 
in her throne, in the throne that he crafted for her. Mm. And Although they super glued themselves. <laughs> yes, they did. They well, allegedly, I don't even see any super glue. They like just kind of standing there with their hands held. Right. Maybe that's just a word, like a, a metaphor. Right. Mm, yeah. So the headline has an acronym embedded in the headline. E R A S T I C C. Era stick. Yeah. And they are sticking themselves to this throne, to this the grand chair. It's actually uh, it's a, the chariot that never moves. This is where the gears of the system oh, tur- turn. Shit. So they are in a in a throne that doesn't go anywhere. I like where and this is they, going. And they're flipping the narrative such that the children are now deriding the adults and asking them. What the, how the fuck did we get in this situation? What were you thinking when you put us in this situation? That is psychologically what happens when Hephaestus traps Hera, when Hera sticks to the throne, he then begins to interrogate her to find out his origin story. True, true. I and mean, that, that's, that's fascinating. Although, do you, so, okay. I agree with what you're saying. The parallels are very close but do you think that these ladies these women knew that story like do you think this is purposeful no i don't think children can sneak into a government building and put on a huge staged event this is all public uh pr campaign for the for the movement uh you know we weren't even it's it's like uh uh in washington they're still putting people on trial for breaking into government buildings and calling them domestic terrorists. <laughs> but meanwhile, out here at the chariot of the world in England, the actual throne where the real gears are turning, these kids were able to sneak in and put, and they're not even getting removed. Home the, of the like, lizard people. They were just in yeah. the basement, bro. That, that's what happened. The right. children were in the basement already, so they just made their way up and they took a quick picture. So, yeah, so I don't think these kids have the uh, sophistication to realize the complexity of the spell or the spell craft that is in play here. I think all these children have parents somewhere and somebody removed that we'll never see or know the name of has probably organized this to have all the ingredients of the uh, Hephaestus and uh, the dynamic of Hera. And what did they do with that? I guess that's my question. Okay, let's say that's the case. uh Uh-huh. So, like, what, what, like, what, what are they harvesting here? What are they? Well, for one, um, they're, they're utilizing children, the innocent children who should not be there's You can't reproach somebody else's child. You can't tell somebody else's child what is right or wrong. So the children in themselves are like a human shield. You can't attack the child because they're children. Of course, they're misled. But somehow they are granted access to the eyes of the world to uh, to scold and wag their finger at us. It's a uh, it's incredibly nefarious, in my opinion, to use children and weaponize them on the global stage. It's kind of the same thing as using an elderly person, you know, somebody who can barely walk, a toddling, dawdling Joe Biden. You know, I feel horrible uh, criticizing him because he's just a poor old dude. You know what I mean? it really pulls on your heartstrings in a, in a fascinating way. And so 
Now, here's where a very interesting term comes to light. So Adriga, the charioteer, is in the station of Taurus, the bull. And so these triggers are a chair at a bull cause. It's a charitable cause. And it's pulling on our heartstrings, I think, in a very unfair way. But it's the heartstrings of the collective. And when you get the heartstrings of enough people tuned to just the right note, then you can steer them like a grand chariot, like you have tethers on all of their hearts. And you can cause people to make decisions uh, by magnifying the spell times everybody watching. Okay. So what you're saying then is that these young children tying themselves to this chair elicit some type of empathy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That well, empathy then is what's being harvested. That that's where the ten, so this is for climate change, right? What what is this for? Right. So that's where the ten commandments come in because they're the ten principles for climate repentance. So oh, that, that's where they come in because again they're trying to push this and I and I saw this video today where Biden was talking about like hey you and I both know there's no climate change like <laughs> he goes uh, a Freudian slip right he goes uh, you don't you know you and I both know there's no climate change but it goes back to this whole thing where they're steering the energy so much way in order to write the the puppet master to put stuff like this we are stewards of this world creation manifests destiny everything in life is interconnected do no harm look after tomorrow rise above ego for our world change our inner climate repent and return every action matters use mind open heart that uh, sounds kind of uh thelemic to me <laughs> some of them are not terrible i don't know about this repent and return but okay kind of weird right that was a weird one uh steward yeah. The world, okay. Creation, manifest destiny. That's divinity. Good. Yeah, that's sorry. Manifest divinity. That's a bit too Christian for me, but okay. Um, everything in life is interconnected. That's pretty easy. Do no harm. Look after tomorrow. Rise above ego for our world. Again, that's a very Christian value. Um, and one other point is that our children will attach to this movement, and then be infused with the with the idea of blame blm Mm -hmm. blm is blame and they will blame their elders for the situation that they're convinced is like i mean people really don't they think that the trees are going to be on fire in 10 years you know what i mean they really think that the world is burning when it's fucking i had a great harvest this year my plants are loving it are loving it granted there are more earthquakes and volcanoes there are there's a lot more flooding and yeah. like in Canada, up until yesterday or the day before, we were having like 20 degree weather, which is unnatural for us. Right. So there are, there are definitely once, shifts in the in the environment. Right. And everybody wants to BLM somebody for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a really interesting statistic I heard is that a single volcano can put out more carbon emissions than all humans on Earth in a single volcano uh, than all humans in a year. One volcano puts out more than all of us in a year. Hmm. So our contribution is diminished by that mathematical equation in a fascinating way. So uh, to kind of, this is kind of uh, 
a really fascinating revelation for me here is wait can we can we finish the the chariot one because i really liked where that was going hold on i'm sorry is that, i'm trying to i'm trying to i'm i'm trying to i'm torn, Car- I'm torn guys i'm torn carla right now is what everybody's ask like asking right themselves in the, in their heads right now. like what is the point like to what ends you know to what means is all this for and i'm trying to paint a better picture for those because Again, not everybody's in the know, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, yeah, well, so. one thing one thing I'll say is they have circumvented the role of the parent. And now the next generation is going to look for daddy government to be the solution. And the parent has been completely removed from even knowing what right and wrong is. And, uh, I and that, agree with that to some degree, especially with school, and uh, although, I, you know, indoctrination. Uh, yes. But that's... Yeah, that's something that's been going on for some time. Mm-hmm. Parents are losing more and more power, let's say, or control of their children because now you have to put them in this eight-hour school system, and there's all that stuff. Yeah, it's uh, been it's it's been a it's been a gnarly ride to say the least. You know, my my kid, she thinks I'm uh, she thinks racism is a skin color. You know, it's really it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And then you throw in five years of the term toxic masculinity with fucking Donald Trump at the throne. And now we're all wearing masks because we're afraid of toxins. So who subconsciously is receiving the blame for all the toxicity in the air that we're all hiding from in these masks. And by the way, masks are also theatrical masks. They are eclipse magic. You get a, there's a frowny and a smiley face Mm-hmm. Well, eclipses either make a frowny pathway or they make a smiley pathway as they express on the earth. And, and by putting a mask over your face, that's eclipsing your face. Mm-hmm. So you are interfacing. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. The word persona in law, legally, the word person is a mask. It's an Etruscan word and it means mask. And so your fictional ID that you identify with, that you think that that is you because you've, you've confused the subject for the object or the object for the subject, that is your persona. And it allows you, like a mask, it allows you to interface with the fictional world. And so this is part of the revelation of why sovereignty is shaking the foundation of the earth on a real level because people are realizing, wait a second, that's not my ID. That doesn't even belong to me. My social, your social security card, it says on the card, this belongs to the state. And if you find it and it doesn't belong to you, please return it. So why are you keeping your social security card? What's that? Only in America. Right. It's a, it's, it's crazy how psychological it all is. The American dream, because you got to be asleep to believe it. I mean, we have, we don't have a social security card. We have like a social, what's it called now? Yeah. Social insurance number. Same shit, different, different wording. It doesn't say anything about belonging to the state on the card. Oh, that's interesting. It's just your name and the card. And yeah. And now they don't even give you a card anymore. You have to realize it, which is weird. it's going to get harder and harder to prove these facts because they are eroding the revelation that we came across in our lifetime. The kids uh, to, yet to come, they're going to have a hard time uh, even believing a lot of these truths that we've discovered in the path to sovereignty. Uh, so uh, the, ch- uh, the charioteer is, um, 
it is a very it definitely has the aspect of Hera locked in her chair because uh, in most tarot cards, you will notice that the wheels don't really seem to be going anywhere. It, ha it will have wheels, but the base of the chariot is, uh, is a block or a cube. And so it has the appearance of functionality, but with a little bit of closer inspection, you'll actually find out that most charioteer cards are just designed to sit in place and give the illusion of movement. And so I find that to encode the solstice where the sun does not move for three days. It stays in place for three days. But I also think on an even deeper level, it is encoding the idea of the lunar standstill, a prolonged eclipse period where the moon and the sun come together and they uh, and it lasts for, I forget how long, I want to say I want to say three hours, but it is, it's a, it's a prolonged eclipse period. Um, so I just thought I would share that, that the charioteer seems to be like Hera in her throne, uh, locked in place on, and not really going anywhere. Uh, Do you think that that's a uh, purpose? So you think it's purposeful and not just the fact that they couldn't draw a wheel in movement? <laughs> yeah, it seems to be consistent. Like even in the older... Yeah. Uh, uh, tarot decks it's uh it's it's almost like um you know that uh the oh what's his name he uh in the movie big tom so, hanks some don't even a, have wheels right uh tom hanks he makes a wish to the to the wizard machine yeah uh and i think its name is like Zor zordon yeah. zardon yeah and so that is that is encoding the charioteer because he's got an upper torso, but his the base doesn't move. Hmm. Yeah. So some some don't even have wheels; they're just stationary. Like this one doesn't even have wheels. Is that the this is the Rider White? No. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. this is an earlier one it, that's got the wheels sideways. I've never seen a chariot with wheels sideways, and this is the one that's like mostly that I've seen that's kind of facing forward. But mm -hmm. again. It, I, I really love the chariot cards, my favorite card, because just because of the whole full metal alchemist. And I do think that mm -hmm. he is birthing reality into existence. And that's what they're invoking by being at the forefront of, again, the world. The war, It goes back to the whole world. The world's a stage mentality. And Shakespeare, if he even existed, was the one that said that. So. Right. He meant they meant something by that. Again, these guys of antiquity, they even if they speak in symbols, which they all do because they're all alchemists, so it's not going to be forefront. It's not going to be that's what a lot of people don't understand. They want it to be black and white. Well, sometimes it's not that simple. Uh, a lot of a lot of guys want to be literal, you know, which is true, although that leaves room for interpretation that as well. And so right. then you're having a battle of interpretation without any possibility of confirmation, really. Yeah. I, I do. Your, your gut instinct or your yeah. Your I see. I see a lot of both and in the chariot card in particular, because not only is it a potentially a lunar standstill, um, but also the North Star, as well, is a the only star that stands still all the time. So that's something that Mario Garza has brought forward in a really powerful way that the 
the the cosmic wheel is uh, spinning on this one axle axle, and that axle is the Polaris, the North Star. So mm. I think that there there is a both and uh, kind of fused into the art of the chariot card here. It leads to assumptions by the gut, and we know the gut is full of shit sometimes. So <laughs> that's also another another so, part of it. <laughs> so one other thing that is kind of that is uh, objectively provable is that the word North Node is actually an anagram for Odin throne. So the throne of Odin which is the throne is the seated, you know, we're talking about these chairs. So Odin's throne is fused into the word we use to describe the lunar standstill and the North node. And then you can do the same with the South node and it becomes Odin house. The Odin house is down below in the, uh, in the winter part of the months. So there's a throne up in the public in the su- in the sunny time of year, and then there's a house down below in the winter time of year. The occultic so part. I do have to point out that these are English issues, right? In the sense that it's an anagram in English. Mm-hmm. 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 You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it feels a bit like it's an English problem. <laughs> well, so... Yeah. Right. I have an idea on that because back then what they've changed the language, that's the universal language, like the the main language back then it was what Latin. And then before that it was whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it goes back to it being an English problem, but what is a majority of the world nowadays speak? What is, what is accepted as the academic language in a lot of these places around the world now English back then it was Latin. And then they went and they changed because, again, I think Rome just switched hands. It just kept going. <laughs> so that's guess, my personal opinion on that. I guess. I mean, I see what you're saying. I guess what I'm thinking is like these some of these only work if, if we're thinking English. And if we're, I mean, the Vikings weren't that long ago, right? Like four or five hundred years ago. So I feel like perhaps this them, whoever they are are definitely a more modern and by more modern for me as a historian i mean the last thousand years maybe more Mm -hmm. um development not to say that secret cults or the occult is in modern development but perhaps like these specific things that we're seeing yeah are more are more recent yes i mean i don't know i don't know i I don't know I think we we could probably uh, point at, you know, Francis Bacon and uh, uh, Shakespeare, you know, as the delivery system for this lingua franca of our day. They gave us to the to the I mean, they let the people come into the Globe Theater for free just so that they could they get free bread and circus. But they were also consuming this new language as well so that English could proliferate. And one thing that's interesting about ling- English is it uh, has a lot of polysemal words, where uh, which was Shakespeare loved to play with, you know, anagrams and palindromes and uh, yeah. in multiple meanings, dual, dual meaning. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. Yeah, I think it's very interesting, guys. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know so- how much of it is sort of... The ramblings of a madman? 
No, I just, yeah. I do, like, I see the connections that you're making. And it's fascinating, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I, I guess, so, I, and there's no way to be really certain how much of it is purposeful or how much of it is, yeah, or is Coincidence, yeah. Yeah, not coincidence. I don't really believe in coincidence. Well, uh, this is why I bring this up. Reconstructed Roman Temple of Mithras opens to public. And where is it at? It's in... Housing the Bloomberg's European headquarters. Again, what? yeah, this is a, a reconstruction of a Mithraic temple by Michael Bloomberg at his headquarters in London. So, and we're, th and we're thinking that, a re I mean, I can actually say 90% sure Mithra is Hephaestus, Auriga, mm -hmm. specifically Auriga, the is, charioteer. This is five years old. Okay, this is old. This is old news. This is from 2017. And he it built opens in London. I did not see it. I would have loved to have gone see it. Now, this to me automatically would be just a symbol of power. Yes. But I guess as an archaeologist, I would also be skeptical about the reconstruction as in what did they put in? What did they leave out? Because, of course, that's a choice. Well, a political choice. You know about things that they put in foundations of buildings for certain an opening ceremony is just that a ceremony in order mm -hmm. to oh you know the missing cornerstone or whatever they call it it's all related back to that and how you're saying what are the intentions behind this building uh who know we're not gonna know that, that's the whole thing but we know that to the ancients it was very special. So why not harness that sort of energy back again to this harnessing of energy, the transference correspondence and use it for your own magical workings, even if it wasn't the original intended purpose. So I mean, that's interesting. I mean, do we take into consideration that Mithras was originally a, a Middle Eastern divinity that Mithras was originally a female, so therefore this divinity can even be considered a trans divinity because right. androgynous was mm -hmm. a she, mm -hmm. uh, or yes, yeah, she originally was a she. <laughs> Do we take into consideration that Mithras is basically what we celebrate at Christmas? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of that, and that he had 12 apostles and all this kind of stuff. And you had the Ben Ben stone there, right? Because he had a stone as well. Wasn't he birthed from a stone? So you have the whole, the the navel of the world. But also, yeah, I hate to say it, Carla, but the androgynous alchemist is another thing. Where when, once the magnum opus, the great work is completed, you exist outside of space and time as an androgynous being. And you're able to come in and out of reality and affect reality from the outside. Again, this is, it can either be symbolic or it can be literal, whatever way you want to do it, but it's a real life game of chess. And we know chess, they don't know the origins of it, but I believe chess is another real, again, al alchemy at its core is affecting matter mm -hmm. in order to affect, in order to be able to step outside of that reality that we are able to perceive and affect it. So by you playing this game, using it as a simulacrum of the real world, whatever that is, and you're able to make a change in, you know, whatever change you make in the game is able to affect the world that you're able to perceive outside of the game. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're trying to do 
when when I think of any weird ritual or anything like that by the elites, by the lizard people, by the reptilians, whatever, I think of that. Using this energy in order to invoke a change, even if it's not like the Harry Potter bullshit that we've been led to believe, but some which way, you know, rotate that energy and use it for their own their own purpose well that doesn't have to be uh necessarily a secretive or a conspiratorial thing i mean mm -hmm. i mean we know that we are marketed we are a marketed society right, right. That, that's not a that's not secretive nor is it hidden and and because we know we're a marketed society we know that we are then an influence society and obviously everybody knows they don't have to even overthink it that the news shifts our thinking and celebrities shift our thinking and all this. I mean, that's something that I think everyone kind of knows right now. Right. Yeah. Shifts but, our thinking. But I think it becomes nefarious when the, when there's only one agenda behind the manipulation, mm. when it, when the peer, when you get to the top of the pyramid and there's not as many people and there's not any checks and balances, you realize you know, we're being led into this hive mind mentality where we may not, where free will might actually be completely at risk in a generation from now, like utterly no longer a thing, maybe even vilified, like free will might get you in trouble for talking about it. You know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, it, Historically speaking, I think that's a cycle in the sense that I think that there's always this wave that I think we're living in a wave we've lived in before. Like but we didn't we didn't have cell phones before. True, we didn't have cell phones before. True. And so, if that all funnels to one tether, you know, then eventually they won't need a stick for every flavor of personality. And you know what I mean? Yes. Theor I, theoretically. Yeah, so. it's interesting. I don't know. I I mean, my belief is that the system will collapse at some point. Yes. And that we will return actually to the old ways yep. mm -hmm. but in order to do that we have to really reach like a system collapse which i mm -hmm. don't know if we're there yet like i know people think so and people are worried about it but i'm not sure how much of that is hype and how much of that is everyday reality i'm not sure because you step outside your house and the majority of people are living their lives Life goes on. I mean, is this something that's going to happen in our lifetime? Who I think, I think, I think the lockdowns are a real good indicator that they, that things have gotten dire. Things have gotten really dire. You know, the carrot and the stick thing. They've got a lot of people that, with all that coercion, they got a lot of people, and now the dependency is in is multiplied. You know, there's so many more people are now going to require the intervention of daddy government just to live, just to have a, a longer life expectancy. That's interesting. I don't know, because I almost, I agree with you in some ways. I feel almost though that the lockdowns and everything has now made people angrier. Like, like as far as Canada, for example, if our prime minister comes and says, we're going to lock you down again, Canadians are going to set the world on fire. Like Absolutely. It, right. So I feel like they've taken a pause and said, this is not the right time to push people too hard. How, plus with inflation, inflation has people right at the edge of like anger and rage. It's out of control. So it's out of, so it's a little bit like, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I can't predict. I mean, because they've had so much more training and psychological data than, let's say, kings and queens and emperors of old who also tried mm-hmm. these systems. Mm-hmm. I feel like they are 10 steps ahead of us in sort of how to shift people. But human nature still is what it is. I mean, I don't know how long you can push people like before people have nothing to lose and then then that's really when the system collapses. Right. I think that's maybe that's why it hasn't happened because of systems like this where they're able to predict like, hey, if we go one more, if we add this to the alchemical formula, we're gonna get XYZ. So let's stop it right here. You know, they're pissed off, but it's fine. Hold it off and then let things cool down and proceed as I think it's all done it's all orchestrated. It's all done by by design and but absolutely i think people are waking up to these sort of shenanigans and i think that the lockdowns and all these things and just right now what we were talking about before on air these studies that are coming out and people are like wait a minute now i regret doing this so the next it's like the boy who cried wolf the next false flag or the next event that happens people aren't gonna just blindly follow maybe there's still gonna be those people who who will still buy there's still people who are driving around here in florida i don't know why but inside their cars by themselves with mask on i go are you okay like mike that's what michael jackson said what is it honey are you okay whatever the hell was annie are you okay are you okay yeah (laughs) so again i don't know what it is but once i think once they lock into that frequency they're able to stay in there. It's it's and it rem, it reminds me of no matter how scholarly the work is. I've, I I read. I don't know if you have any of, of you two. Uh, Gustav Le Bon, the crowd, and it talks about how a crowd of people, and that can be a nation. There's a criteria: a nation, a neighborhood, a group of people, whatever. There's a criteria that it meets. That crowd becomes a living organism. And it, it's as smartest as the dumbest person in it. So the, the, the lowest IQ is as smart as that group is going to get that crowd. And this is done by a French social psychologist, like scholar, prestigious. This is the, the uh, work written in the 1800s and it hasn't been disputed. And no matter what, when it comes to all this stuff, and this is why I believe the occult is in, intermingling in everything that we do. He, there is one thing that he couldn't explain that he called the contagion. And he said that this contagion happens when people get together. There is something that comes out that weaves its way through the crowd and brings forth this bestial nature in people and makes them act a different way that they wouldn't act otherwise. But because they're in this setting. So it's a metaphysical thing that he can't even explain. Like, why is this happening? It's like, we don't know what's. We call it the contagion. This that, sounds med- like, that, that sounds like COVID. Well, that but well, that's an actual thing, right? But I'm saying, let me, let me censor that word for the tubes. <laughs> but so you're, saying, you're saying it's like an energy, like mom mentality, yes. Like, when, yes. like like a like a mosh pit mentality. Mm-hmm. Or whatever that energy that and I think about like this the you know this black mist just going through everybody and changing we see this in movies they do that type of thing we got that black mist going through everybody and taking people over and this is from a scholar that has written about and another another thing that he talks about is prestige that these elites put out this metaphysical charisma 
that when people, when these people are up front in the media, they put out this light, this, this, this energy where people are drawn to that. Look at Hitler, look at Mussolini, look at Mao, look at all these guys of antiquity who had control. Antiquity. Uh, antiquity. Oh, of history. <laughs> <laughs> of history. Oh, you give me somebody. Augustine, Caesar, Nero. Well, I mean, those guys are pieces of shit, but you, okay. you get the point. They put out this this energy that people... right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He called it prestige, though. It was a sort of charisma. But, but the point being that even a scholar can't completely take out the metaphysical. Like, hey, this is how people react, but... We still don't 100 percent know why they why they do that, and I think it's a metaphysical thing, a contagion. Well, what, what's that? I can't explain it. It just happens. It just. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I see what you're saying, and I agree with you. Some people are charismatic, but let's say if I'm standing in front of my class and we have a good vibe, and I'm teaching a subject, and they're participating, and it's awesome. You have positive. You have the same thing you're talking about, where there's something metaphysical happening everyone in the room is like feeling it although in this case a positive thing yeah the setting but again intention so uh you know i'm sure hitler was putting out a certain intent and intention in his words to do yeah. bad things to people right so you yeah. when you're teaching you're not putting that intention of wanting to harm somebody in right. that you know what i'm saying you're in a in a friendly environment so it's different but still you feel the energy right you feel uh, the shift yeah. in the atmosphere when it comes to you teaching. And yeah. again, I mean, I, I feel the energy too when I'm doing podcasts and stuff like that, even if it's live or not. That's why I don't like doing live podcasts because I feel like there's a shift in energy because the people looking and watching, not real time, but still they're watching. And it's right. even weird after the fact, after I put it out into the airwaves, I still feel weird about it because mm -hmm. I don't know how people are going to react to it. Right now I have zero clue how people are going to react to it, but live people are reacting real time. You know, they can right. call you a piece of shit real time. And you're like, wow, okay, sure. Uh, so right. <laughs> that's why I don't like doing live shows. But again, yeah. it's, it's something about the energy that you put out and the, and I think that that's probably just energy science. If we can call it that, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're all energy and we give off energy and we mm -hmm. receive energy. We, I think as a, as a society, we have not been taught the power of our own energy yes and i think that's what people are starting to wake up to now it's certainly on trend a lot more like you wouldn't use the even the word oh your energy or divine energy you wouldn't really use that let's say even 10 years ago it wasn't yeah. really a thing but now so i think that that's maybe what people once people are aware that their own energy affects their lives and other people's lives then maybe we can believe in our own power yeah right that's all those ingredients are crucial to the feel the feel grouping of the enneagram they are uh there would be the twos threes and the fours they know very well the power of the energy in the unseen realm because they use their feelings to to navigate the world and meanwhile, the thinkers on the across the line, on, across the Cartesian split, over on the other side of the Enneagram, the thinkers, they're in, almost in denial of the feelers, mm -hmm. you know. And so I agree with you, Carla. It's totally uh, the wave is coming back. 
and the feelers are going to have their 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 day and hopefully they can keep their minds together and stay uniform with the body mind yeah. connection well this is what i'm seeing a lot of a lot of people talk about vibration now which they hadn't talked about for a long time a lot of people tell you like don't get caught up in the negative vibration stay in the positive vibration and Sometimes like I do believe there's a bit of toxic positivity sometimes where it's like if you force someone to always be positive (laughs) and put so much pressure on their positive, that person just, you know, so, but I do see a lot more sort of emphasis on those words. And I feel like if once those words become on trend and once those ideas become on trend, it gives us more power, hopefully, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, every individual has to make their own decisions, but it gives us more power over what we emit then into the world right peace and how and love man yeah yeah it's like a yeah, hippie i would like it to be all peace and love i mean every now and then somebody pisses you off you're like i'm gonna punch you but uh, <laughs> you know but uh but yeah i think we are perhaps even just us talking about it you know and putting it out there the fact that people are now more and more aware of like at least our energetic self and that yeah. that energy can be manipulated and that energy can be used. Totally. So I think we're doing yeah. the work in some way. Big time. Yep. It's good to build out a, a, a vehicle for even communicating it. And, you know, choosing these words and sharing them infuses them with more momentum and empowers the people who are going to listen later to be, to you know, I love that term, uh, toxic positivity. Positive is a big thing now, yeah, because everybody's big on love and light, Uh and uh, people are starting to say, okay, like, love and light is great, but if you're going through something, love and light may need to pause for a second, you know? Right. You know, so that's, yeah, that talks about, and the other thing I was going to say to you guys, I don't know if you heard, but recently, uh, the University of Southern California just created a master's program, and it's called the Magic and the Occult. So, Where's that? I'm gonna go get that. University of Southern California. So this tells me. I mean, and as a person who's you know at a university, we would have never had a magic in the occult program like even ten years ago or five years ago. Mm-hmm. So what this told me is like there must be a demand. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a demand by young people to yes. learn more about and and when I say magic, I think you know I'm using those kind of words around energy fields and around you mm-hmm. know so. When I saw that, I was like, holy crap, a master's degree in magic and the occult. That's really cool. Uh, but there's certainly a demand or else they obviously wouldn't put it on there. Yep. Um, and there'll probably be more and more of these programs as they try to get young people to go to school. Less, less, less and less young people want to go to university. You know, they're finding less value in it. So I thought that was really cool. I mean, the occult, a whole study in the occult. Yeah. That'd be pretty Man, cool. It's a great that's story. super cool. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it goes back to the whole, it it's it's being noticed and it's being taken se- more and more seriously, and yeah. not just a pseudoscience. Which right because that that's what it that's what it's always been since the beginning. Right there's you have the inquisitions mm-hmm. like it's like bad bad bad, and then you have this Christianization of everything with the Catholicism and and Christianity and all these other religions where it's like they take the mysticism out of it. And now there's a reemergence of it. Now there's a, a new reawaken, a new renaissance coming in. We're like, wait, this has an effect on reality in some which way, or you know, you know, you know what I mean. Like in in a some way or form, this affects reality. So I think that's why 
they're offering and now, that. And you said that was where? Minds, uh, University of Southern California. And now to blow our minds even more, I don't know if you saw the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize for Science went to someone, and don't quote me because I just saw it on and I'm read gonna, about I'm it. I'm going to quote briefly. you. Went to someone who, or a group of scientists who discovered that when a proton, so from a, and again, don't quote me. So from a body of something, of matter, a proton goes one way and another proton goes another way. These two protons can still communicate with, so it's like quantum leaping or quantum, right? These yeah. two protons can communicate with each other no matter how far the Superstition, I think it is super, superposition. I think it's what it's called where there's two yeah. things, quantum tunneling or something where there's two separate sides of the universe. They can still be create, you know, right. related. So that's my I mean, so I thought like, that again even 10 years ago that would be something that would be a bit considered oh, i don't know if that's really a place for you to, that would be discouraged and now <laughs> yeah, that's cool that, that's uh that's the hermetic principle of correspondence mm -hmm. that's right that's, that's totally right. but in the physics language that's really beautiful that's exciting that's super exciting yeah i thought so too i, I when i was reading about it i was like but also totally. the fact that it's getting so much credit rather than, again, mm -hmm. magical cult, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Stuff. So, I don't know, I guess it's a bit of positivity. Yeah. Well, you know, the most recent eclipse, the, the solar eclipse that we just had, its pathway cut right through Oslo, Norway, where the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> is, is enthroned. Yeah. And then it went right over the Nord Stream uh, position where the Nord Stream maelstrom happened. The word Nord Stream in reverse is maelstrom. And so it was almost designed in its name. It was designed to become this bubbling Nord maelstrom in the ocean for a nice photo op. So it fulfilled its own name when the event happened. But the, the cut of the solar eclipse, it went right through Oslo, Nord Stream, and then it went through Turkey. It cut the Turkey. And then it went through uh, Jerusalem, interestingly enough. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it took a really fascinating pattern. So, uh, yeah, the Nord Stream event is, uh, that was a, there was a lot infused into that, a whole lot infused into that. Uh, can you pull up the most recent one, Juan, with the tarot card? This one is hard to explain because I actually had realizations about this that made me uncomfortable. I didn't know what I was seeing until I connected it to this is the tarot card that embodies the, the charioteer, the location where the North Node eclipse, uh, lunar standstill takes place. This card, if you put the cards in their zodiac position, this, this card is in Taurus. It corresponds with the bull. And this was making me really uncomfortable because Greta's, her full name is Greta Tintin Eleonora Urmin Thunberg. It's a really long name, but she has the word Tintin. Her name is Tintin. And this is the card number 20. XX is 10 and 10. Mm -hmm. And this character here has this iconic ponytail. This is, the, uh, this is in the Crowley deck, specifically this card from the Crowley deck. He altered this... By the way, his artist who made his deck, who he commissioned to make the deck, her name was Lady Frida Harris. Mm -hmm. And her genetic line dissipates <laughs> into obscurity in two locations, India and Jamaica. 
And guess where Vice President Harris, where her genetic line comes out of obscurity? No. India and Jamaica. So I do believe that the vice, vice is a vicar, it's a vase, it's a cup, it's a reservoir. The vice president right now, the first female president, I think she is carrying the bloodline that was the artist that was commissioned to make this deck. Oof. And I know that's a huge jump, but the bloodline that made this art is now in the position of the vicar president. She's the vice president. Okay. Now, this card was altered considerably from the old uh, tarot systems. This is a very unique card to the Thoth deck. And it has the body of Nut. We all know about the Egyptian goddess of Nut. And so she is the night sky up above. And in the background is, uh, I think, maybe Osiris on a throne, enthroned, with the spirit of the new Aeon coming out of that throne as though he's breathing her into existence. And you can see the ghost image of this Aeon character who has the iconic ponytail that is powerfully correspondent with Greta Thunberg's ponytail. Uh, And her name is Tintin which is corresponded to this 1010, card number 20. And this is where it gets weird. When you take her full name, Tintin Eleonora Ehrman Thunberg, it's an acronym. Her name is Greta Teet, T-E-E-T. And I was like, why? What is that great teet? And I was thinking, okay, like, you know, they expect daddy government to be the great teat in the sky that they can suckle from you know i was like trying to make this connection and then i looked at the card and there is a great teat in the sky some big titties right there has her her tatas hanging out she is the great teat in the sky and so it all came into uh fascinating correspondence for me um now, it is also said that in Taurus, that is the birthplace of the Milky Way comes out of the breast <laughs> of Taurus. So it is all esoterically uh, um, uniform. It's not random. It is very uniform. And so the shape of Nut is also, sh- so this is Nut who is nude. This is the nude Nut. This is the North Node. This is the Node of the North, is the naked Nut. And so all of these things uh, are powerfully embodied in this card, the new Aeon card. And so what is really creepy to me is that I believe Greta is the embodiment of this card. She is a living new Aeon. She is also, we know she's on the autistic spectrum. She's double, she's tin tin. That's aluminum, is tin. So aluminum is the adjuvant that is in vaccinations. So she's double vaxxed she's double she's double wounded she's the wounded uh like uh hephaestos she's been double injured by her parentage uh mythologically i don't think she's a real i think she's a total fabricated construct i think that she's an actress a young actress i don't think any of these things actually adhere in reality to the person who is playing this role but her mythology has all the esoteric consistency and it blows my mind uh, absolutely. But Gabe, if, mm-hmm. okay, for all of these things to take effect, the things that you spend so much time putting together, the average person does not know that. Let's say, let's, mm-hmm. let's say, so why does it matter? 
because their higher self does know. The average person's higher self. All of our higher genius is perfectly capable of picking up on this. The homunculus within all of us, you know. <laughs> the grand collective. Because hmm. this is really interesting because I, I was, because I love that Carla is the skeptic and she's asking all the great questions because that's what people are asking because they always ask us like, what does it matter? Or what, you know, where are you getting, are you reaching this or that? Well, I mean, how you said it's up for interpretation, but uh, what Gabe is saying, absolutely the higher self, the astral body or whatever that, that even if you don't believe in it, they believe in it. You know what I'm saying? Right. They're the ones that believe in it. There's a reason again, why these buildings are designed the way they are because they have they have a, a door for your oversoul at these cathedrals you know where your light body is supposed to go through even if you oh. don't believe even if, if you don't believe they still believe that and they manipulate that energy to so you're purpose. saying okay so let's say greta's in front of me my higher self recognizes all of this packaging and then what happens am i Okay, so let's say that's that's all true. So then how did they profit from that? Like, what's the profit? What's the... I, I think because we're... Uh, so tech, uh, technological enrichment breeds spiritual poverty. Hmm. And so because we are so technologically uh, left-brain dependent, our right brain is starving. It's crying out in agony for, please give me some spiritual, some, some acknowledgement, some value in the world. Give me a role to play. Okay. And so while we are all stuck in this right and wrong linear thinking, our, our symbolic half of ourselves is starved for input. And so it will take this on and it will interpret it and read it and see the consistency of the meaning way above and beyond ourselves. And we might not ever realize it, maybe in our dreams, you know, you might go to sleep and you might have Greta in your dreams and you're like, oh, why was I thinking about Greta? Well, it's because your genius was processing the symbolic consistency of this entire, like I said, the scaffolding. Um, I read a very interesting book a long time ago, uh, The Goddess Versus the Alphabet. And it's a great book. Um, and another book that I often confuse with it because they're so similar, so I always recommend them side by side is uh, the chalice and the blade. Oh, I love the chalice and the blade. Okay, nice. Yeah. So very often, the chalice and the blade. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah, so I do believe that, you know, the, the symbolic half of our mind has been repressed for a very long time, but I also think it's been used uh, unbeknownst to us. Hmm. And that we, we do live in a world where uh, symbolism actually has way more of a role than we think. Like even a do not park sign has a red zero with a line crossed through it. Well, that's like, uh, that's a highly, it's both Saturnian. It's a Saturnian sign, which is limitation is, you know, cosmically it's limitation. Mm -hmm. So like the symbolic language of our realm is still in place. We just don't acknowledge it's that we're twilight language. Yeah. Green language. Big time. I, can agree. I can agree with that. I do think that unconsciously, symbolic knowledge has been passed down to us yeah we are in modern day we are not aware and i mean i know that for a fact most people are not aware even when i just talk about some basic symbols they go oh so i do agree with that um i just yeah i'm not sure i guess i guess we don't really there's no way to measure mm -hmm. 
uh, what our higher self recognizes and then how that could be utilized against us. Yeah. One, one, one thing that, uh, that draws me in that I cannot break away from is that I will take these concepts and I'll actually, be, uh, because it's a complete system, like the Zodiac is complete. So when you find one piece, you have to go and test the other 11 pieces to make sure it has the consistency. Like I was doing with the, with the, um, the uh, uh, Hercules story, right. you know? Um, and, and that's what's fascinating because we can only talk about one thing at a time. But if we had, if you guys were here all day, I could, you know, fill in the other 11 stations and we could lock it into place and say, okay, this is consistent. And that's what I think that occult school in Southern California would be really good for doing is giving people the uh, the whole picture so that you don't just like, you're not just fishing for one connection. You have 12 lock, uh, locked and loaded, ready to go confirmations that this is a holistic system. And it really is. Uh, and that's why a lot of what I present is you kind of got to take my word for it because I've like, mapped it all out and charted all the other options and the other options don't make sense unless this is true You're like source you know what I mean? source trust me bro i got my phd <laughs> from the university of youtube so yeah and uh, definitely and I, and I always said that magical systems and from my study of the occult my study on magic and all this stuff i've seen the evolution of the magical systems to fit the narrative of the practitioner at the end of it do I believe Biden is orchestrating some great cabal and doing a great magical ritual? Absolutely not. But the people around him probably are. If you look at him, he is a zombie. He's a homunculus. There's no which way around it. He's There's no way he's the, the big man, right, calling the shots. I think he is just a pawn in the game. And we know that at the end of that chessboard, what happens to the pawn? They are elevated. They are transformed. They transcend to that next tier, whichever one you pick. So again, I think it's a real life game of chess. True. Although I, I, I should say that historically, that's always been the case. The kings are pawns. Mm -hmm. Other politic, political leaders yes. are pawns. I mean, the king is literally a, 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 an object on the board if we're talking about the chess board mm -hmm. and not a strong one to, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he's a, Not that he's a pawn. He's not quite there, but, you know. So, yeah, so I think you're right, but I also think that's sort of the norm for power structures, that the person that's, that we see is always, there's always like a whole... Oh, yeah. He's the totally. facade. Yeah, yeah, he's you the know. facade. Totally. That's probably, maybe that's, maybe that's the, the, the reason is the hierarchy, because the hierarchy allows only one person at the top, but it's really the others, mm -hmm. right? Really, so maybe it's in the nature of the pyramid, that mm -hmm. causes that, you know, um, yeah. I don't know, but you know, they say, and this is, I only have certain level of security clearance myself, but I've heard that the president is, uh, 29 levels down the rung mm. and that there are 20 some other security level clearances above the president, mm. uh, which leaves a lot of room for, you know, the priest class to be pulling strings on a crazy level. Uh, so I sent you one more about, about the capitalism pyramid. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. So I sent, you, I sent you one more there, Juan. This is just one more spell that I've seen that is really fascinating. I think you'll really enjoy the potential of this. Um, 
And then once we're done with this one, we can go back to the Enneagram. And I want to just sh share some of the stations and talk about like what you think about the Greek pantheon and the implication of these people. Uh, I think of it as like a full spectrum dominance. That's actually a military term they use. Um, but yeah, we'll get we'll get around to the whole the whole complete Enneagram picture in a sec. So this is the story of Andromeda, mm -hmm. which is has other cultural um, uh, emanations as well. Okay. But, uh, Andromeda is a constellation. She's at the spring equinox, um, and in her story, she is. Uh, uh, given up as a sacrifice uh, mm -hmm. from her parents mm -hmm. uh, to to uh, Cephas, the sea monster, who's going to come and eat her. And uh, that's going to make the sea monster, it's going to appease the sea monster so that so the, the, whatever uh, has been plaguing the kingdom will subside. And so she's chained to these rocks, uh, often at the shore side, which uh, I think of that representing the... Uh, the water is like Pisces. We're coming out of Pisces, and now we're uh, in Aries in the spring equinox, okay. and that's that's actually where she's stationed in the in the sky, and so that's a very sacred location. We've talked about this in the past. It's right at the X, the X of the Analima. If you turn the Analima into a calendar, then uh, Andromeda is uh, offered up as a sacrifice right at the uh, at the markation around 415. And she takes up, a, she's also connected to uh, Pegasus, which almost makes her three months long. So it's like real hard to miss the mark. She she has a very long uh, breadth of the sky, the sky clock. So as the uh, stations are climbing out of uh, winter and into the spring, that's where she is always locked in place. She's stuck there. She can't leave. And so then the, uh, the year, we go into Taurus and we come around and we turn the corner and then there's a descending line that is going to cross over the X. And that crossing of the X that, uh, that will essentially overlap onto where her station is, that crossing of the X is on 827. It's a, a holiday called Vulturnalia. Mm -hmm. And they say that it's um, a veneration of the... Um, of the river goddess, which there is a body of water there. Um, and so it fulfills the idea of this, uh, this spirit of the water taking the offering of the sacrifice that was left there from the four months before. Uh, so in that aspect, Vulturnalia washing over Andromeda's location is fulfilled in the Analima, but we look at it from the story of Prometheus, which is very much the same thing. Prometheus is chained to the rock. He's stuck in place, uh, much like Andromeda. And then it is, isn't it harpies that come and eat his liver? A vulture. A vulture. Vultures. Yeah, eagle or okay. vulture. Okay. So Vulturnalia is descending upon his location. And it's doing it for eternity over and over, which is the infinity sign which is the Analima itself. And, and now this is really remarkable because today we have a modern-day Prometheus and his a story of a modern-day Prometheus. It's Julian Assange. And so Julian Assange 
was locked in uh, the embassy of Ecuador for seven years in, uh, you know, some form of punishment or uh, atonement for his sins. He was paying for giving the fire of knowledge to the, to the man, to mankind. He gave us information that we weren't supposed to have. The forbidden fruit was passed on to the masses. And so his punishment was being locked in this ambassador or embassy of Ecuador. Well, look at the flag of the embassy of Ecuador. It has a vulture perched on on the top of the icon. Yeah, it is a vulture. It's a vulture. He was stuck in the in the embassy and the embassy had the symbol of the vulture on it all along. And okay. And it Let's even ha- and it even has the fairy. Uh if you look in the archway of the flag, it has a fairy going the long way across the river. So that's the uh, Prometheus is the light bearer. He's Lucifer. He's carrying the light. Well, this fairy is actually uh, going across the river, and it has a, a caduceus also very subtly uh, in place on the uh, on the boat on that flag. Hmm. So I found this to be an absolutely fascinating reenactment of celestial dynamics that repeat for eternity, forever and ever. So the you know the definition of magic is harnessing natural uh, natural phenomenon in accordance to your will, and so theoretically this is a, like a dramatic replay of natural systems that are going to happen inevitably in accordance to the will of somebody who doesn't want us to get information anymore, and wants to lock us down and you know label every or even give people the thought that they might be considered a terrorist if they brought forbidden information forward. Hmm. Okay. I have a couple of points of clarification. Okay. This is my first one. Okay. So my, so Prometheus comes first before uh-huh. Andromeda. Oh, that's great to know. Right. Mm-hmm. Because he, he's Prometheus is the creator of human beings, right? Okay. It's man from clay, uh, basically to take care of, the garden which is the earth it's basically the story of genesis but three thousand years before mm-hmm. the story of genesis is a story so prometheus uh creates man in fact there's like a few generations at first he creates only men and then they end up dying and he actually creates them maybe a couple of times i think before he's like okay i keep making these guys and they're, they're fucking retarded <laughs> they keep dying <laughs> no but like they're not reproducing and then so then he realized oh shit i have to make matching pairs and then he makes like matching pairs and then they reproduce themselves so he doesn't have to keep doing the work uh anyways and then the reason why he steals fire from zeus of course is because they're not surviving very well the humans and so he goes and steals fire and therefore his punishment is this but he is liberated by hercules um eventually yes yeah he's liberated by by hercules so he's he's meant to be there forever but he doesn't end up being there forever and then andromeda i guess is a little different because although she is chained to a rock though that seems to be sort of greek mythology cliche um she's offered as a as a sacrifice right so she's offered as a sacrifice to the monster uh that perseus ends up slaying and Perseus is writing Pegasus. Pegasus 
comes out of the neck of Medusa after Perseus kills her. Uh, and then he rescues Andromeda and ends up marrying her. Um, and, you know, they don't live what, happily ever what after. What a weird tale. Uh, it's all, it's, it's just... Hero, it's a heroic tale, right? There's a maiden in distress. She's chained to a wall. Perseus uh-huh. comes flying on, on his horse. Uh, he kills the evil monster. He's not, he cuts her chains. He frees her. Yeah. I, I have a question. Is Prometheus, does he have white hair? Uh, Is there anything to the white hair of Prometheus? No, uh, he's a titan. Okay. So, uh, I don't know. Pull up some images. Uh, there aren't that many images of Prometheus, to be honest, in yeah. the ancient world. Now, again, so we got to be aware of, like, when are we looking? If we're looking at Europeans drawing him. Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be, it would be really cool if he did have white hair, because Andromeda, her head is in, it's also, it's inside of uh, Pegasus. It's partially in the stars, in the uh, yeah, astrological. That. Yeah, that's interesting. And so yeah. the fact that Julian Assange has white hair corresponds with the fact that Pegasus is a white horse. Yeah. So it is strangely appropriate from the Julian Assange angle of the story. I do think that the Julian Assange story could be sort of a, a metaphor for Prometheus's punishment. Although I'm not sure if those two are directly related other than the modern interpretation of ancient myth punishment I don't know. I've never, I can't think of an image of Prometheus that is of the ancient world. Not seeing anything. No, no. There's not that many Titans in the ancient world. I mean, depicted in the ancient world. Even Kronos has very little depiction. Yeah. Um, Rhea, maybe a little bit more, but yeah, Prometheus, I think on the vases, you might find him on the vases, uh, Juan. Um, you might see Prometheus on the vase, uh, on the vase. But yeah, I don't think there's even a statue of him or anything like. So I don't know. I don't know. What yeah, he's on. Are. He's on vases, but I don't see yeah. anything else. Yeah, and that's like red. That's red figure. So I don't think yeah. there's. A, I don't know if he has white hair in those or no, anything. No, it's but black. Yeah. I think one thing that might we might be able to think, say about Prometheus and the color white is that the uh, when phosphorus burns uh it often is so brilliant that it burns white it's white hot which is like the hottest form of explosion that there is Mm. so in that in that aspect we might be able to correspond the white with prometheus being like the brightest of fires possible yeah i mean yeah prometheus definitely is the life giver of humans for the greeks and And not just in creation but also in giving them fire and light so the light giver yeah. yeah, and I I think that Assange chose to have white hair. I think that's part of his bio. Is he wasn't he was you know blonde when he was young, and then at some point he just went with the white mm-hmm. as like a you know maybe symbolic of the Promethean story. Yeah, I mean, but you know, but yeah, exactly, exactly. So some people do find a myth and then associate themselves with it. Yeah, yeah. I don't well, know. Do we read into that? I don't know. Like I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and from a conspiratorial angle, uh, there there is a there is a uh, family fraternitas is a German uh, secret society that I think today is called the Family International, 
And the mm. Family International, uh, the best way to to maybe see an example of them, it was in the movie Utopia. And in Utopia, there's a whole cult family of uh, extremists who are actually actors, like an uh, international actors guild, who go on and stage events to steer history in a certain direction. Okay. And, the, and so uh, Family International, one of their icons, the way that you know that you're dealing with them is that they have white hair. They're like a sacrificial lamb, the, un, uh, the untainted sacrificial lamb. And uh, some examples, and this might or might not be true, but Phil Donahue, he had white hair and he made a righteous stand against the Iraq war and he got sacrificed. And another strange example that hasn't been sacrificed yet is uh, uh, Cooper, Anderson Cooper. And he does have connections to the Family International because he was CIA and he will always be CIA. But he rocks the white hair as well. And he's on a high horse. He's a hero figure. So he might not be as much Andromeda as he is the Pegasus, you know? That's interesting because when I think about the Greek gods, I can't... They golden hair maybe or light of hair light of hair is probably an expression that homer uses uh light of hair and fairer face but there's no actual ancient depictions at least now they're doing recolorization of statues so that's really exciting uh-huh. maybe maybe once they start recolorizing some statues we may see some of that but um Color-wise, yeah, I, I haven't heard any of the gods having white hair. In modern times, they do the old dude with the white hair for Zeus. and the, yeah. But again, that's a modern interpretation, and then it's affected by modernity. But yeah, that would be interesting. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. What are the clothing, clo- clothing, closing thoughts, Gabe, as we approach the three-hour mark? Oh, here? yeah. We got to get this thing done, right? People be- listen to us for three hours, do you think? <laughs> Fuck if I. <laughs> or are they all passed out, like sleeping now? <laughs> <laughs> that was a heck of a ride. Well, I'll just I'll send I'll send you my uh, this is my rough draft of the world leaders. Uh, in in this is nothing about this is final or absolute at all. Uh, there's definitely more examples stacked into each position. You know, there's probably better examples that I haven't even occurred to me yet. But I just wanted to uh, maybe flash uh, this graphic and see what you thought about it, because I'm really excited about uh, my, uh, particularly my Athena. I really like who I've picked for Athena, and I want to see what you think about my Athena uh, candidate, <laughs> we'll say. Um, okay. So. I don't know who that is. It's Tulsi Gabbard. And Tulsi Gabbard was, she was one of the uh, uh, Democratic candidates when they had 20 candidates the last time around. She was one of the 20. Oh, and she, sorry, she, I'm not that well-versed in American It's because you're, yeah, Canadian. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I don't, maybe I shouldn't taint you with this bullshit. <laughs> but she, she is battle-tested. She's actually has a lot of military experience. Uh, she was in the Iraq War. Uh, she uh, she was a politician in Hawaii, uh, which is really fascinating because uh, 
because Auriga is the charioteer over in the eight, who is Vulcan, uh, related to Vulcan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so okay, so so she balances the eight. The one in the eight are balancing each other out. Okay. And now, now think of this because this is really cool. I think Athena was parthogenetically created by Zeus. Not was really, but okay. Really, yeah, like popped out of his head, was born out of his brain in a weird way. And then Auriga... The historian was, in me is like, wait, okay, yeah, go on. Right. But they, but they were both, and they create. so the one and the eight draw a line to their parent. So Athena was born out of Zeus's head, so the one connects to the seven. And Auriga was born out of Hera, parthogenetically, and the eight connects over to the two. And so they both have this powerfully balanced position in the Enneagram of the reformer and the leader in those two positions. And so I just find that fascinating that in those, uh, the eight, nine, and one are the act. They're the, uh, the body, the instinct, uh, categorically and so they are like the left hand and the right hand of the throne of the nine in a very fascinating way but they're uh but they are they're like powerfully related to each other archetypally and their story and their myth it has that similar uh ring to it and and if now if, now help me out because i believe that uh Hephaestus, he made that contraption where Aphrodite and Ares would be trapped in the in the act of coitus. Mm -hmm. And they were locked in a net. Mm -hmm. And then he invited the other uh, the other gods to come and laugh at them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what is really fascinating, so the charioteer Auriga, Hephaestus, the eight, it connects down to Hera. If you follow the line, it goes to Hera, his mother. And once he got her locked in place and earned her favor, he was granted a wish. And he wanted to marry Athena, but Athena's like, nah, I don't roll that way, bro. Yeah. So he had to bounce down, see how the line goes down to Aphrodite. Yeah. And he ended up marrying Aphrodite instead. Yeah. But Aphrodite was running game behind his back. And she was connected, follow the line up, to Aries. Okay. And so Aphrodite and Aries were getting down with each other, mm -hmm. and he trapped them in a net with his crafty, with his uh, contraption. And so in the craziest way, the dynamics of the Enneagram express the mythology of these dynamics of the characters. And uh, just, I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable to me. Okay. okay, but you place yeah. those you place those names there. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but they uh but they fit their personalities, you know, like Athena uh, couldn't I think you got it pretty right, except I don't know if I would switch why is Zeus not the leader challenger? Why is Zeus the enthusiast? Uh because uh, I think the leader challenger. Uh, okay, well, there's one, there's a lot of ingredients missing here, but there are planetary placements as well. There's a planetary uh, overlay onto the enneagram, and uh, so number eight, the challenger leader, 
is uh, Saturnian. It has the the symbol of Saturn. So I generally consider it Kronos uh, or Saturn. And then the planetary placement for number seven, the enthusiast, is uh, Jupiter, the planet yes. Jupiter. And yes. so that's why I put Jupiter with Zeus, uh, because he was born out of Kronos. And uh, so, yeah, so so that's kind of actually the planetary placements are like a cheat sheet that also reinforced the, the my guesswork here. Hmm. So like so Aphrodite is uh, is Venus has the Venetian yes. energy, you know. So yeah. there is a whole nother layer of correspondence that I couldn't fit. I ran out of time making my uh, making my graphic here, but there is a planetary cheat sheet that uh, that reinforces this as well, if that makes sense. But then my only complaint is that Athena is not born Bar Parthena genetically. Okay, okay. What she would you has call? a mother, right? She yes. has a mother. Her name is Matisse. Her mother. Yes. And right in an attempt to hide the mother from jealous Hera. Yes. Swallows the pregnant mother. Right. And then the pregnant mother gives birth inside of Zeus. And I don't know what happens to the pregnant mother. She disappears. Yes. And then Athena jumps out of his head, like you said. Right. And I heard I heard today that somebody said that Metis was actually crafting when he ate her, she was inside. She was crafting the armor for Athena yes, to I've heard that too, actually. Yes. No, yes. I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah, and that's kind of cool. That's yeah. kinda, but I do think that that story tries to make Zeus a parthenogenetic creator. Right. To take away from the fact that all parthenogenesis is done by goddesses. Totally. I agree. Right. I agree. It's it's, it's tricky because it's, would you maybe, could we say it's a homunculus? Because it's made by a man, it's not part of the genetic, it's a homunculus that's born. I don't know. <laughs> oh, poor Athena, poor Athena. Uh, <laughs> if 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 Matisse was not in his body, then maybe you would be right. Yeah. But other yeah. than that, I think she has a pretty regular birth. But uh but it's interesting that then it's almost like um uh, uh, Hephaestus, when he cracks his head open, it's almost like opens a, a brain womb and right. uh, it's supposed to, you know, pop out of that. Eh. Right. And you know what's kind of neat about that? Look, Hephaestus is above him. Like, yeah. Hephaestus would just have to reach down and tap him on the head and then she would pop over to the one position. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I put... Uh, I, there's so much more to this and we've already spent all our time, but I, uh, I put, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, I put her in the position of Hera. Mm -hmm. uh, I do. I noticed that she, um, and I think that may have a lot to do with uh, the artist who, uh, with her lineage, her bloodline. I think she comes from a Royal bloodline that, you know, having those roots in Jamaica and over in India, I think she does come from, you know, Hera was a, wasn't she an Eastern uh, a deity who was fused with the Western Zeus when they married? Yeah, she, she could be traced back there. She could be traced to a few places, but certainly that would be one of them. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I put Kamala Harris in there as in Hera's position and the name is so correspondent. It kind of begs to be, to be infused there. And then it drops down to Neptune or uh, Dionysus is also a three. Uh, but Neptune was the planetary correspondence. It has the planet Neptune 
uh, it fits into the number three. Mm. And so I put King Charles here because of uh, one thing about Neptunian energy is that it uh, has a lot to do with drugs and intoxicants and like, you know, you're swaying on the, the ebb and the flow of the tides of the waters. Uh, so Dionysus fits because of that intoxication. Yeah, I was thinking Dionysus more than Neptune there. Yeah. Or, Bac- yeah. or Bacchus, I guess, if we're, if we're using Roman terms. I love that. I love that. Nice. So, uh, so King Charles, his official cipher is a RC, which in uh, Gematria is a 93. And 90, the 93rd periodic sim, uh, element on the, ta- on the periodic table is Neptunium. So in a really fascinating way, he's holding the scythe of Neptune or the, the psi, P-S-I, the psi, which is the, the last Greek letter of the, of the Greek alphabet. And, there's a, and it's used in many, it's almost, uh, it's drunk on its own implications because they use, they use P-S-I in all of the arts and sciences. Uh, so it's vast like the ocean. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, then I got uh, uh, Elon Mask over here is Aphrodite, because the word Elon is a French word. It it means like uniquely formed, and so he thinks he's so special, <laughs> and it has the uh, the shadow of envy, and a lot of people envy him for all of his his you know theatrics. But then I put uh, Julian Assange. I put him as Hermes. Because he's like the messenger uh, in a fun kind of way. So I just threw him in there, the thinker and the observer. Now, Paulo and Artemis, uh, I think of, you know, they're twins, right. you know? And so we're in the thinking, we're at the pinnacle of the thinking uh, grouping. Uh, five, six, and seven are thinkers. And so I think of Apollo as like the epitome of uh, thoughtful accomplishment. You know what I mean? Uh, culturally and uh, oppositional to Dionysus over in the three position. So it's like your Dionysian is like the feel aspect and the Apollo is the, the think aspect. Hmm. And so I also think of like the, even the word populace, you know, the populace, the, you know, the civilized minds are the populace. So they live in the cities. And so I put Zuckerberg in there because they Berg literally means city. Um, and it, his name could translate to city sucker, <laughs> Zuckerberg. Um, but then he does have a twin there with old um, Jack Dorsey. You know, it's Facebook and Twitter were kind of their own uh, universe, parallel universes in a fascinating way. Uh, so, yeah, I put uh, Dorsey and... Uh, Zuckerberg and that position of the six, the questioners, you know, if you, if you break their policies, then you get kicked out of their city, you know, which I actually like Artemis as the wilderness, not as not in the city, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you're not with Apollo, then you get kicked out to the wilderness with Artemis. Right. And that's kind of the du- duality of the six that I like, I like a lot. Um. And then I had to, I mean, I don't like him any more than anybody else, but Putin, I mean, his name is like Peter, which is Jupiter. He also, uh, it's Putin, and Tin is a is correspondent with the planet Jupiter. 
Uh, and even the, the country of Russia is like gluttonous. It takes up so much space. It's so broad. So the shadow of the enthusiast or the shadow of a seven is glutton. So I give him the position of the gluttonist. Uh, and then freaking Donald Trump, that turd, he's got to be the challenger, the leader, the Saturnian energy. He's got a hair swoosh that is looks like the planet Saturn. And every night, the, his part of his mythology is that he ain't McDonald's every night. And so that's just fascinating because Kronos ate his own children. Mac means son of. So every night, Donald Trump was eating the son of Trump, or the son of Donald. So his wow. mythology embodies that he is eating his own young. And then, now this is, uh, so I put him next to uh, to uh, Greta, which makes no sense. It makes no sense at first glance. But if you think of them as both being challengers, they are both challenging the status quo in a major way. It's almost like if you don't think that Donald is your challenger, then you got Greta is going to be your challenger. And if you don't, if you're not triggered by Greta, then you got Donald to challenge you. And then I got to point out that the word Donald in reverse is de la node. D apostrophe L A N O D. He's of the node. So he, his name, also wears the mantle of a of these nodes of the uh, lunar standstill significance, same as Greta does with the Tintin and the Aeon card that we covered. So he has a node. He is of the node in his uh, iconography. And then the peacemaker and the slothful one uh, or the balanced one or the mediator, I put, uh, I put Biden here. And I know this is kind of odd too, but in the planetary correspondence, it's uh, the planet Pluto is stationed as the nine. Uh, and the shape of Pluto is, uh, the symbol of Pluto is a bident. It's not a trident. A trident is three-pronged. Mm -hmm. Biden is a bident. It's a two-pronged uh, fork. And so his whole name is Joseph Robinette. He's got a net in one hand, and he's got a bident in the other hand. And those are the weapons of the gladiator, of the arena of the gladiator. And uh, Pluto, in his mythology, doesn't he, like, kidnap a child? He, he takes Persephone. He takes Persephone. He steals yeah. Persephone. That's right. And so Biden, Joseph Biden, is always sniffing the kids. He's always copping a feel on the children. <laughs> He's the big sniffer. And so he, <laughs> in the craziest way... Uh, I mean, I've, I see, I've seen artistic depictions of Pluto, like, uh, riding away with that child in his arms. Mm -hmm. Persephone, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the grabbing... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the grabbing of a child, the stealing of innocence, is strangely embodied in this slothful dimwit. Pluto planetarily is a dimwit. It's a dim light that moves incredibly slow. And... Joseph Robinette Biden can't even get across the stage without somebody trying to help him along. It's the sloth. It's the, he's the slothful one. So that's like a quick run through. And I, I know that the planetary cheat sheet might have helped a lot with convincing anybody who's on the fence. But I think we've got a nine to nine match. Well, wow. I'll... 
I'll be glad to see what your developments are on that, Gabe, because I know this is, especially when it comes to building your own ideologies and stuff like that, it you know comes with time. And when we're studying one subject, obviously when you become an esotericist or something, you always add to that knowledge. So very intriguing. I love the idea. It makes, a, it makes sense to me. And I love the fact that that Carla was the, the skeptic today. She was really <laughs> pushing up against She's like, well, you... That should be my, that should be my intro. So we brought I a skeptic that. with us today. I love that. <laughs> I, I totally love that. That's awesome. I, I need that because it helps me develop yeah. the vehicle for conveying the information. Mm-hmm. It's great to have... All the more pushback, the better. I totally love it. I love it because sometimes when people question me, I'll be like, mm, that's a very good question. I don't have an answer for that. So <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. A- any closing thoughts so oh, we yeah. can head out of here? And any closing ideas or conclusions that you want to throw in there before we sign off? You first, Carla. Um, no closing ideas, but this was a lot of fun. I do see how much work you put into it, Gabe, whether or not we agree on on it. But and some of it I do think is like, wow, that's in- interesting connections, mm-hmm. like right? unexpected connections. Um, so so I so I appreciate all all of this work that you're doing. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. It was fun. I had a blast. Yeah. What a what a what a roller coaster. <laughs> That was that was a good old time. Thank you guys for sitting through with me. Uh, and you know, it's good that we did this before our next project, Juan, because I'm kind of going to keep the same framework. Uh, because doing this work actually set me up for the project Juan and I are going to do. Uh, because I realized that the tarot cards actually follow the same one. Station one is the Fool card. Station two is the Magi. Station three is the High Priestess the uh, tarot cards actually fit uh, also perfectly uh, as you mm. roll through the Enneagram as well. So the consistency of this system fitting into the uh, to the tarot and to uh, the movies that we're probably going to break down uh, in future projects, which are top secret, 29 levels of security clearance above this. So don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be following the Politocult Enneagram. That's what I named it, so... Ooh, really like that. Thank you for that. Dang. The Polito Cult Enneagram. So Oh wow, that's great. We just we just uh christened the theory. That's right, that's right. But yeah, I'm really excited for the next the next episode we're gonna be doing. It's not a big secret, it's the deoculting of Star Wars because why not, right? Right, the lizard people are at the core of it, so it's gotta have some occult significance. And it does. So we'll be breaking that down. And as always, uh, I'll post the links in the description for where to find Carla and wh- wh- where to find the skeptic Carla and where to find the, <laughs> the word wizard Gabe. So I really enjoyed this. Thank you guys for being here with me today. And Thanks, hopefully guys. we'll see you on the next you. one. Much love, everyone. Bye. Good night.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.